Everything about this moment in history seems uniquely designed to challenge our mental health. We are suffering, we need answers, and we need help. That's why I'm so thrilled to be partnering with Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound to host their new podcast series, Going There. I'm Dr. Mike Friedman, clinical psychologist and life coach. With Going There, I will talk with musicians who struggle with their mental health, just like us. After all, mental illness affects us all. And the same artists who have stepped up to share their wonderful work with us are now sharing the intimate details of their journey in living with mental illness. We are going to ask the tough questions, and we're going to have the difficult conversations, all so that we can learn from each other. But more importantly, to shine a light on the difficult topic of mental illness so that we can all come out of the darkness and get the care we need. So we hope you join us on this journey. Going there, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonigan. And we are joined today by a very special guest. She is a conflict transformation facilitator, and she does a lot of work providing insight into how to help shape an accurate narrative around cultural traditions and perspectives in academic fields. And she's also one of my best friends. Valerie, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, we're so excited. Um, So Valerie and I work together. Val leads a diversity, equity, and inclusiveness team that I'm part of. And I am so glad that you could join us for this episode because I know this is a topic that you're really passionate about. So speaking of, we have a new theme for the month of February. We are talking about generational trauma for this month. And I had never actually heard of this before, but I'm really excited to dig into it. And to kick it off, we are going to talk about another movie that I am so excited to talk about, Jordan Peele's Get Out. So before we do get into this, um, let's get into the synopsis. Before we get out. I'm apologizing in advance that there might be more of those. Before we get out, let's get (laughs) Get in. in. Get in. (laughs) Gotta get in to get out. Um, (laughs) So in case you've been living under a rock and haven't seen this movie, we are going to give a brief synopsis. So here is your spoiler warning. Spoiler warning. And I apologize. It's not that brief. Um, It's one of our longer (laughs) synopses, but it's a hard movie to to get you know to quickly synopsisize synopsisize yeah we're gonna make that a word (laughs) this will be my best effort (laughs) so okay we open on a suburban neighborhood at night where we meet Andre who is on foot and looking for an address as a black man in a white suburb he's feeling very uncomfortable a feeling confirmed when he notices that a car is following him 
Before he can get out of there, he's grabbed by a masked figure and dragged to the trunk of the car. Back in New York City, we meet Chris and his white girlfriend, Rose Armitage. He's going to meet her parents for the first time and is nervous because she hasn't told him that he's black. Upon reaching the palatial Armitage Lake House, his fears turn out to be justified. Rose's parents use just about every performative white ally cliche in the book to show that they're not racist. Air quotes, not yes. racist. Which, you know, <laughs> no spoiler, pre-spoiler, they, they definitely are. <laughs> they are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they also employ two black domestic workers, Georgina and Walter. Chris senses that something is off with the pair, who talk, act, and dress like elderly white people. Chris calls his friend Rod, a TSA agent, with whom he can let down his guard and express his true thoughts. Rod is having none of this scenario, and he tells Chris he should leave because white people do crazy sex slave shit. He's not wrong. (laughs) Um, Rose's psychiatrist mother, who is scandalized by Chris's smoking habit, browbeats Chris into letting her hypnotize him in the guise of helping him quit. Chris doesn't explicitly consent, but she goes for it anyway, emotionally manipulating him with memories of his dead mother. With the cue of a silver spoon and a teacup, she plunges him into the sunken place, where he is able to see and hear everything around him, but has no control over his body. It seems that Rose forgot about the annual party her parents throw every year. Oops. Oopsie. Yeah. To Chris's <laughs> heroically well-disguised horror, a caravan of older, rich white people descend on the lake house. The guests pay a little too much attention to Chris, attacking him with racist microaggressions that border on macroaggressions. Chris and is it real... is a caravan. They arrive oh all at once. Like... And a bunch of like black mm, sedans. They do. And it's, it's very weird. It's, it's definitely. <laughs> and there's, as the movie reveals, there is a reason for it. Um, Chris is relieved <laughs> to spot one other black person at the party until he speaks to him. The young man introduces himself as Logan, but we recognize him as Andre from the opening scene. He's dressed like a huge nerd, doesn't pick up on any of Chris's signals, and generally acts like an old white guy. Chris tries to surreptitiously snap a photo of him with his phone, but the flash goes off. At this, Andre's eyes clear, his nose bleeds, and he lunges at Chris, yelling for him to, Get out! Get the fuck out! Which, you know, is the title of the film, and probably the most iconic (laughs) scene from it. Yes. One of many. Chris takes a walk to get away from all the weirdness. Meanwhile, in a truly chilling scene, the partygoers have a silent auction for Chris's body. Rod, seeing Chris's photo via text, identifies the man from the party as an acquaintance who went missing earlier that year. Chris now knows he needs to leave immediately. As he tries to leave with Rose, we learn that she is fucking unbelievably evil, just like one of the top (laughs) ten or top five most evil characters in anything ever. Mm -hmm. As they all confront each other, Dr. Mom uses the silver spoon to send Chris to the sunken place. He awakens in the basement, restrained and waiting for what we find out will be a sort of brain transplant where his body will be taken over by the auction's highest bidder, a technique owned by the Armitage family that they repulsively call the coagula. Before the surgery can begin, Chris escapes, killing everyone in the family but Rose, who is busy upstairs eating dry Fruit Loops with a glass of what I can only assume is skim milk. (laughs) Upon hearing noise, she chases after him with a shotgun, aided by Walter and Georgina or turned out to be Rose's grandparents in the bodies of her previous victims. Georgina is killed in a car crash, and Walter, awakened by Chris's cell phone flash, shoots Rose. Then, sensing that it may be his last chance before his body is taken over again, he shoots himself. Chris begins to choke the still-alive Rose, but ultimately gives up as sirens approach. Chris is ready to turn himself into the cops, resigning himself to the racist system that criminalizes black men. 
But in an amazing reveal, it turns out to be Rod in his TSA car. And Rod handles shit because he is TS motherfucking A. He sure is. Just a great, great moment. We'll talk about it in a second. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Uh, The reality of the situation sets in for Chris as the two friends drive off into the night. Yay. (laughs) Such a good movie. Very well done. And so now let's move into our feelings check. And I think this is one where the feelings and naming the feelings and sharing the feelings is is pretty important because when we're talking about something like generational trauma and racism, it's really easy to become uncomfortable and check out of the situation. And that is what keeps us from really making progress with each other. So, you know, I'm kind of speaking to my fellow white people. We got to get used to talking about this kind of stuff and we need to start saying this makes me feel uncomfortable but I can still keep doing it so anyways so this is where we talk about what our first experience with this movie is and how it makes us feel when we watch it and Val I would love to hear about your first experience with Get Out all right um so I uh was raised by my mom she's white my dad is black um my mom is uh from Puerto Rico so there's a a whole nother level of discrimination that that goes along with with that um uh, and every time I I walked into her living room, she was watching Get Out. And she's like, have you seen this movie yet? I said, no. Yeah. So five times. She must have watched it five times before I, I sat down to watch it. And I avoided it because I cannot do horror. <laughs> and that's what this was labeled as. Mm-hmm. And so I was terrified. Um, I can't even do gremlins. Okay. <laughs> um, so I finally sat down and watched it. And I thought, oh, this is just reality. (laughs) Um, But so brilliantly done um, where if this was done by somebody else through a different lens, through a white lens, it would be a completely different story. But the way the experiences of black and brown people are told in the story was so truthful that as horrific as it is, I felt really good that this was out there and was so popular. Um, and I I hoped that people understood this point of view, which is quite literally the lives of so many people. Um, maybe not a physical brain transplant, but that's what it feels like sometimes. Mm. Yeah. Mike, what about you? So I know when we get into the meat of the movie, we're going to talk a lot about the uh, themes that are like prevalent throughout it. And I will kind of like dig into them at them time. So I'm just going to try to approach this as just like a piece of entertainment just for this part of it, because what's easy to lose is like how goddamn entertaining this movie is from start mm-hmm. to finish. And like you can, if, as a debut film from uh, Jordan Peele, like what a goddamn statement. And mm-hmm. you can tell that he comes from a performative background uh, as part of the comedy troupe Key and Peel, because he makes sure that like every single person in this, every single performer in this movie has a moment, even if they're only on the screen for like 30 seconds to a minute, like all of them get something memorable. There are so many examples in this movie of just like things that are laugh out loud funny and memorable even if they don't necessarily move things along to too much of an extent so that is i think on in and of itself like everything else like how his eye to detail and also his ability to subvert genre tropes in a really smart and intelligent way like we'll get into the opening scene uh with andre and how that turns like the cliche 
young white woman uh, in a dangerous neighborhood on its head with an African-American male in an area of uh, affluence. Mm -hmm. It should also be noted, like, I think one of my interests in this movie is, although it was filmed and conceived prior to the election of 2016, it's the first real work of art that came out after the inauguration of Trump. Mm -hmm. And it has a lot to say, and we're going to talk about what it has to say about I think the previous eight years that had come before that, and I think maybe the complacency on a lot of person's parts that give rise to a figure like Trump. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to be really say, fun to examine, but it's I do think that things like that are interesting to talk about and to discuss and kind of, kind of pull apart all the different threads there. I also thought like, well, if there's any benefit to the next four years is you're going to see some incredible art come out, whether it's in filmmaking, whether it's in music, whether it's in television. Um, I think of like the early Reagan years and the rise of like punk rock and hardcore and underground filmmaking. And I don't think we got that over the past four years. I think there's been some incredible work, but I think that, mm -hmm. I think it's a different generation and I don't think, and maybe I'm just old and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't <laughs> think that outpouring of like culture, counterculture art really reared its head to the extent that it could have and should have in the past four years. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that particular subject, but I feel like if I go down that rabbit hole, as a comedy writer who was trying to write comedy during the Trump years and it's found hard. it nearly impossible because it was such a parody of itself yeah. already, <laughs> like I just yeah. feel right. like we're beyond beyond you know on the other side of the looking glass with this yeah. shit. But uh, yeah. I'm hoping that's coming. Yeah, though. I feel like, like uh, you know. I mean, to compare things, we I think we've all, you know, some some of us more and some of us less have been undergoing a collective trauma in the last four years and you know. Mm -hmm really capped off by 2020 just really yeah. wanted to do the coup de gras so mm -hmm. i think a lot of that processing hasn't happened yet but it's starting to now and it's going to be a fucking I, shit show I, <laughs> I had a person say to me in session on friday so that would have been january 22nd you know I'm like how do you want to use your time how are we doing and the first thing they said was like you know since wednesday it feels like i feel like a different person like i feel mm. like this tremendous weight has been lifted off me and he was like, and they were like, this is really stupid. And I'm like, no, it's not. Let's examine why no. it's not. So mm -hmm. that's, but I think that there is, you know, I know like you see this tweet a lot where it's like, I just can't wait until there's a president again where I could worry about brunch. And I think that's a real danger. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I the, think, the brunch crowd. Mm -hmm. I think, and I understand that. And I, and for folks that like need a moment to breathe, like this is not a criticism, but I do think that, in a short while, we need to kind of collectively regroup. And now is the time to really, while we can, push forward. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hold hold yeah, the new absolutely. administration accountable mm -hmm. because they can be held accountable because they're not yeah. total psychopaths, but they're, yes. they're not mm -hmm. perfect either. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. All right. Well... No, this is, like I said, it's one of my absolute favorite movies. Uh, I saw it in theaters. I think it might have been opening weekend or the week after... Uh, saw it in a packed theater with a, you know, I'm from Chicago, so it was a diverse crowd. It wasn't, you know, I didn't notice any one, you know, racial group overrepresented in in that group of people. So, which is one of the things that I love about living in Chicago. And um, it was just an amazing, like, everybody went 
fucking crazy in the theater. And especially, I mean, you I, I miss being in movie theaters so much because of that shared experience that you get watching a film with people. And I mean, this movie hooks you from the get go and you are on mm. the ride with with it. And um, it's I love Jordan Peele so much because he is a big nerd and he's a comedian and he's an incredibly smart writer. And somehow this combination of all these and he's also a horror nerd. And I think that horror as a genre um, can be used as sort of a Trojan horse to get across really compelling uh, social messages and, and really compelling messages in general. And I think that's what he did with this movie. And it, you know, it blew everyone away and deservedly so. Um, and, you know, the scene where Rod comes out of the, the TSA vehicle at the end, the theater absolutely lost it and was everybody was cheering. And I mean, it's it just goes up there. I, you can feel myself getting excited as one of those like life, one of those life experiences you'll remember forever until the day you die, because it was just such an awesome cathartic moment. Um, and yeah, I, I love this movie. And I think that it's, it's so smart because he's, he took the template of the Stepford Wives, which was, um, which examined the female experience at a point in mid-century America when that wasn't really being openly discussed. And that's what he did for the Black American community with Get Out. It really is, I mean, it's going to be an iconic film, you know, for in, in the history of filmmaking. And I just absolutely love it. And I could say a lot about all those themes, you know, <laughs> you were you were hinting at Mike and I'm I'm sure I will when we're discussing mm -hmm. it. So this is one of this was one of my favorite theater experiences ever. Mm -hmm. It might be number one because it was so much fun. I went to see it with my friend Kara, um, I think probably opening weekend, but maybe the weekend after. But it was packed. And I don't remember the the makeup of the crowd, although it was in Green Hills in Nashville. So it was likely pretty predominantly white, probably. Um, but they like the everyone was so on board and I remember I guess we just spoiled the whole ending but when Rod opens the door when you realize that it's Rod like the cheer in the audience and like the theaters that I go to we don't have that a lot so that was one of the first times that like I'd ever really been in a big crowd reacting to a movie and it was so much fun and I remember walking out and just talking in the parking lot with Kara for like 20 minutes about this movie and just kind of mm -hmm. unpacking it and saying this was so like talking like Mike about how entertaining it was but also like how it like activated us and I think when I talked about it like because I went to work and I was like oh my gosh talking to my horror like the one or two people I knew and this was before I worked with Val but like the one or two people I knew that really liked horror I was like oh my gosh you got to see this movie a little bit um and I was just thinking like one this is why I love horror because this story was able to pull out that understanding of a character or a story that we don't see very often in movies like this is why I love this genre and this was a, a one of maybe the one or two significant movies that really kick-started me wanting to start talking and writing about horror and really kind of examining why I was so excited and like why like I keep talking about it. it's like just a door opening and it's such this intense reaction because of all of the building blocks that have come before it and because the story is so tight and knows what it's doing so well and to find out that that wasn't even the original ending too I was just like this this movie is brilliant like it grows you know it's I would like to at some point for us to discuss the original ending and why he changed mm -hmm. it and that is directly related to what you were saying Mike about you know this coming out right on the the, the you mm -hmm. know the beginning of the Trump the transition mm -hmm. between Obama and Trump um so yeah. I think that's an interesting conversation 
I watched that um, the original ending for the first time last night because I'd heard about it and it was really hard to watch. Like it, it's a gut punch. I. It really is. And I heard it with Jordan Peele's commentary over it, which softened it a little bit. But I mm-hmm. was like, I don't want to hear that conversation between them because it would break my heart. But um, yeah, in the original ending, I guess we should, since we're talking about it, the original ending, he gets arrested. It's not Rod. He gets arrested. He goes to jail and he's Rod. You've got to give this up. Like I, I they got. Yeah. Me, and I know? think that's why the system, the won. script has the house burned down because it destroys all the evidence of what they were doing. And then mm. they just see a, a black man on top of a white woman and make the presumptions mm-hmm. that would be made in our justice system. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, this also came out. He was probably I mean, he said he has said that he was right. He wrote it during the Obama administration. And it was a reaction to that, like post racial. Oh, we have a black president now. Mm-hmm. Racism is over kind of thing. And also. But mm-hmm. we have to remember that under Obama is when Ferguson happened in 2015. And, that and you know, and the things that really came to a head in 2020, I think, really broke through the public, you know, um, the into the public, you know, mainstream media dialogue, you know, in 2015. I mean, of course, it was there. All along. But, mm-hmm. you know, that was when a lot of the dialogue started happening around that. So that moment when you see the cop lights flashing and the car pulling up, you just I remember even myself felt this moment of horror, like, oh, no, this isn't going to look good. And these cops are going to shoot him. And then so when it was Rod, it was such a fucking relief. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and you know, you can see why he was thinking that for the original ending and showing Chris, you know, unjustly incarcerated. Yeah. I mean, that I think that that's like. I sometimes have thought because the no- movie was nominated for Best Picture, it won Best Original Screenplay, which it deserved. But I was so pulling for it to win Best Picture. I mean, no, mm-hmm. no shade to The Shape of Water, but come the fuck on. Uh, <laughs> infinitely better movie. Um, and yeah. I was wondering, like, if it had had this original ending, would that have been like the, the, the dangly thing that that got at the Oscar? But I'm actually really glad he gave it a happy ending because that's another, you know, conversation. But a lot of times movies about you know, uh, oppressed, you know, subjects um, always end in tragedy, right? You see that a lot in the LGBT mm-hmm. community. You see that a lot in every Jewish movie is about the Holocaust. Every LGBT type Q movie is about like, call me by your name or like, uh, uh-huh. you know, that lady on fire, portrait of a lady on fire. They all end in like tragedy, mm-hmm. tragedy. Um, so I think yeah. it was just a brilliant move on his part to to give it the happy ending because he knew that that's what people needed. Yeah. Something, and I put it in my notes for later, but it's something that in the documentary Horror Noir that the um, professor Tanner Reeve do speaks about, and she talks about watching this movie with a predominantly white audience and the reaction the audience had to the ending of the movie. First, when they see the police vehicle pull up, there's like a collective gasp in the audience and then mm. complete silence. And then when it's like Rod that comes out of the vehicle, the cheer and the catharsis that comes out of it at that point. And Professor Dew talks about how that was the first time she had ever watched a movie with the crowd where it's a Black protagonist that has that moment of catharsis. And it's Mm -hmm. shared, that moment is shared with a white audience and how much that meant to her. It's a really Mm -hmm. touching moment in the documentary. And it speaks to the kind of shared empathy that the human experience can have at that point because mm-hmm. i think that you're seeing chris as like a person at that point you're seeing him mm-hmm. as someone that you're rooting for you've seen everything that he's gone through and it would hurt to see him incarcerated or shot down i mean you we all i think keel is you know obviously going for the night of the living dead ending with that where mm-hmm. at the end of the movie 
you know, Ben survives the night and then is gunned down by like the white townspeople who believe he's a zombie at that point. Like they shoot first and ask questions later, basically. So you're prepped mm-hmm. for that. If you have any history of horror knowledge whatsoever, you're just prepped for that ending. And then to have it not be that is just kind of like a wonderful experience. Isn't that something that we need a movie to remind us? I mean, the collective mm-hmm. we, uh, that a black person's a human. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's yeah, such... it's just so, it's still as happy as it is. It's so yeah, It really, yeah. The fact that you have to have it get to that. Uh, yeah. I mean, that is incredibly tragic. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the thing that I think is the most significant about that moment is because a lot of the like we were talking about how this kind of broke through to the mainstream discourse but this has been around since the beginning of this country and it's not it's just that now white people were talking about it and I think like we all kind of have that moment where it like clicks in our head and for me it was I mean I could talk about my own woke moment but like where you understand oh okay this is real racism is real even though I haven't really been affected by it other people have and that empathy clicks into place and so like I feel like for the like the white audiences that watch this like they're if you haven't experienced the fear of being pulled over by a cop it's more of an inconvenience it's so easy to dismiss it when you hear it from other people or you hear it from black people and in that moment where Chris hears the sirens everybody knows in the theater that this is real and that this is life and death for him which is a thing where when you see it on the news like I so many people down here are like well if they just follow the law they'll be fine you know Mm -hmm. and I think this really shows that that's not true and if you're watching this movie you cannot help but empathize with Chris and that's when it clicks into place for a lot of people and also just you know I know we'll get into it the way that media frames different arguments Mm -hmm. around black and white arrests and I'm thinking of like Mm -hmm. Trayvon Martin and the way mm-hmm. his mother was perceived in the media and the adjectives that are used by the media to describe her and her plight versus say like Dylan Roof, uh, who yeah. is mm-hmm. in prison for murdering um, nine African-Americans at a church. And like the mother of Dylan Roof is perceived as a victim. And in some ways she is like, I mean, really she's lost her son to institutional racism and that's a horrible thing. And at the same time, like someone like Trayvon Martin's mother was seen as like, well, why didn't she raise him better? Why didn't she teach mm-hmm. him not to do these things? If he just had a better parent, he'd still be here. And you, and you see that bias in media perception as well. I know we're getting a little bit off topic, but <laughs> this is kind of probably probably the broadest, widest subject of anything that we've discussed. So, Yeah, I think so. And I think one of the things that I love about this movie is it really kind of challenged my perceptions and the way that I look at stories. And it made me really, like every time I watch it, I think more critically about my own actions and my own words. And I think how much am I like the Armitages and how much like maybe I'm not like killing people, but I mean, is the result the same? You know, am I still causing fear? And I think what's brilliant about this movie It's not brilliant. It's just notable. It's not something we see enough of. But this movie is not about white people. This movie is about black people Mm -hmm. and how the white and how 
Chris is affected by white people. And that's what I love about it because it really, like I really struggle with talking about these kinds of things and not centering myself. And that's something Val and I talk about all the time because my entry into this conversation is feminism and that's how I relate to it. And that's kind of the, uh, the injustice and the oppression that I have personal experience with. And my challenge all the time is to let that be the entryway into the conversation without letting it become the conversation because us white feminists, I love you, but we can really suck all the air out of the room and (laughs) really make it about us really quick. And this movie really challenges that. Like, am I, how much of what I'm saying is performative? You know, can I trust my actions to to show that I am a safe person without having to check off all the boxes and say I would have voted for Obama a third mm-hmm. time, you know. And da- Daniel so. Kaluuya's performance in this is just, it's so subtle. And it's like, if you never understood what, what it was to endure that kind of thing before, mm. like he, his performance is perfect. It's, it really, yeah, I love it so much. Yeah, it was, it was, I think this was painful because it was so, well, close to home. It's just, that's, you know, that's sort of, life that's um every day that is um what black and brown people indigenous people you know minoritized people are facing and it's kind of hard to navigate this world of um trust Mm -hmm. like you know as soon as someone says something you're like oh out of my trust circle Mm -hmm. (laughs) um um, and microaggressions come they're fast and furious Yeah, well, and so let's talk about where I think a lot of that comes from, which is our mental health topic, Mm. which is generational trauma. And we've talked about trauma and we've talked about PTSD, and I'm fascinated. The more I learn about this, the more I'm kind of understanding this is similar but very different, mostly in the way that I think it manifests itself. Yeah, So I'm going to read a definition of generational trauma that was um, paraphrased here from an article on health.com, which is just what is generational trauma. Um, I will say this is an emerging field. So uh, if you haven't heard of it before, that's because it is relatively new in in the field of psychology. But I think it's one that I personally find really fascinating. And I got kind of into it because, I mean, I'm Jewish. So as I'm going to discuss, like, you know, a lot of the, the, the research has been focused on Holocaust, Holocaust survivors, yada, yada. But um, that is what personally got me interested in this subject. So here's the definition. Generational trauma, also known as intergenerational trauma or transgenerational trauma, is still a rel- relatively new field of study, meaning researchers have a lot to discover about its impact and how it presents in people who suffer from it. Generational trauma is exactly what it sounds like. Trauma that isn't just experienced by one person, but extends from one generation to the next. In theory, any type of extreme, prolonged stress could have adverse psychological effects on children and or grandchildren, resulting in clinical anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. As I mentioned, most of the research uh, uh, you know, in this field, I have a book on it called um, Survivor Cafe, which is, I think, pretty exclusively focused on the children of Holocaust survivors, has been focused on the children of Holocaust survivors. There is growing research dedicated to other communities that have experienced extended periods of violence and oppression and some of the impacts. So there's another article that Jen found that we can link to in the show notes, and it's called The uh, the Legacy of Trauma by Tori DeAngelis from the Monitor on Psychology publication. I couldn't think of the word journal. Yep, that's the word. No. <laughs> um, and it just I just wanted to 
highlight this one little statement from it, which is that um, there are a lot of different transgenerational impacts. It's very multidimensional. It can have psychological impacts, uh, familial, social, cultural, neurobiological, and some of the origins of it um, may be even genetic. And there is an, also another separate emerging field of study here called epigenetics, which is defined as environmentally driven molecular processes that can turn genes on or off. Again, this is fairly new in, in, as far as the world of science goes, but it's something I'm really fascinated by. And I'm gonna link. Uh, I'm gonna link a ton of articles because I found so much stuff. So I'm gonna link everything that Laura just referenced um, in the show notes and in the piece that runs. So I'll build. I'll build on that because I think that's a really accurate definition of it. And I'm just gonna build slightly on it in terms of like the communities we're speaking of today, and then talk a little bit about how we try to address it as a field. Part of the reason it's generational trauma is, and we're going to get a lot more into this when we talk about the next movie this month, is that mm -hmm. it's, it, it's passed on from generation to generation because these systems are, it's basically the racism and the trauma is based, baked right into the system. So yes. one of the things when persons say like the system is broken, that's a very inaccurate statement. Like, the system we have in the United States is actually working the way it was written in 1789. That like mm -hmm. racism was baked right into the constitution. You look at something like mm -hmm. the three-fifths clause, which said black persons who are enslaved are going to be counted as three-fifths of a person. And that was written in solely so that there would be some sort of like, we don't want to grant citizenship to these people or give them the equal rights that we're professing in the first line of this document. But at the same time, we need to have some sort of um, balance of power between the territories overall. So the system isn't broken. The system is working as it was intended to. And we'll talk a lot more about how larger structures manipulate that system in order to benefit the powers that be in a couple weeks. Um, I found an article called uh, Sankofa Socialization as a response mm -hmm. to the soul trauma of Black women activists in the ministry by Dr. Erica Elian. And it, it transposed this idea of generational tra trauma with the idea of soul trauma. And this idea that like since the days of the slave since, since the days of the slave trade, there's been a continued and systemic assault on Black and brown bodies. Um, and it does so in a way that really breaks down the physical, psychological, and spiritual well-being of these persons. Again, if they're not in physical chains to keep them in some sort of invisible chains and see them as less than. So the psychologist Joy DeGruy wrote about post-traumatic slave syndrome in this idea that populations experience tra trauma from one generation to the next. And it results uh, from slavery from centuries ago, but also continued oppression and institutionalized racism today. And this idea that black identity has been broken down by the powers that be, and then rebuilt by the powers that be in order to give them characteristics of, well, if they, why are they lazy, untrustworthy, ineffectual, and kind of have them seen as less than or apart from other people. And this idea of community is a way to rebuild the experience of being African-American in the United States. And I use African-American because I think sometimes we use the term Black and we see that as a monolithic culture and we don't ascribe any of the cultural differences that come from say 
being African-American versus being Haitian versus being Cape Verdean, um, that there's not just this one monolithic culture. Um, and there are different values, although there are some shared experiences, there are different cultural values and family values that go along with that. And I think we need to be really careful when we describe cultural differences to make sure that we're not painting everything with like a single broad stroke. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it does. And I just want to thank you for that um, because that's not often talked no. about um, where if we open our minds to descriptors, mm -hmm. um, we also remind ourselves that uh, we, we, we let the person we are trying to describe give us mm -hmm. that yeah. descriptor. So, um, and, and we all want to be called something yeah. different. So thank you for recognizing thank that. Thank you. So really briefly, this idea that like a person is a person because of people was the quote that really stuck out from the article. And this idea that like community can rebuild a person and make them whole. Uh, and we locate our humanity through compassion for others and advocating for justice for others and for ourselves. One of the things like, and actually was having this conversation with my wife the other day and we were talking about I was talking about a student and how they, because we're all remote right now in our school district, how during the day, like he's actually with his aunt and uncle um, and he's watching over like sometimes his like young niece while he's trying to learn. And I tried to describe to her this idea that like for a lot of the African-American community, like family means something different than it means to me. Like when I think of family, I think of my wife and my daughter and my mom and that's, and my sister. And that's really it. Like I have cousins and aunts and uncles and they're family, but they're not family. And with the, within the African-American culture, it often extends way beyond that, that it's like your aunt, your uncle, your grandparents on both sides, your cousins, like your cousins aren't seen like cousins. Your cousins are seen like your brothers at that point. They're seen as close as sisters at that point. Um, it's something that in my counseling experience, working with like the Cape Viridian culture, that with one client in particular, like her largest support network is this idea of like, not just like her next door neighbor is as close to her as a sister at that point. So she has this huge network of communal relations that has like, we use that in our counseling when she, when they are having a really difficult time like to lean on that support network to build themselves back up so the idea of like family and i think you see that here in get out like to me chris and rod are more than friends like chris and rod are true brothers because your friend may check in on you your friend may feed your very cute dog but most of your friends aren't going to sue the police if you're a day late from coming home. You know, I think of the Blair Witch Project and how like, eh, in a few days, my girlfriend will check in on me if I haven't gotten back yet. <laughs> so I'm getting kind of long-winded on that. So I'll put a pin in that idea for a minute. Well, there was something interesting I found in that Legacy of Trauma article we were talking about earlier that was talking about how this kind of trauma is like a shared trauma and it's a shared stress and how that affects mm -hmm. a community. And the quote that I'll read from that is, the scenario is part of a legative... The scenario is part of a legacy that the author terms shared stress, the feeling that you have to manage everything within your own community because you don't know what you'll encounter in society at large. And I feel like there can be um, kind of 
insular an insular quality to a lot of communities and a lot of that it goes into like creating a, a safe space mm-hmm. because every other space is not safe mm-hmm. you know right. um and i also this i found something in this article that reminded me of when a long time ago i think it was when we were doing an episode on grief we were talking about the tree and putting leaves on the trees you know and this article was suggesting that clinicians work with patients to construct multi-generational family trees that include details of families' trauma history, an activity that can help families move beyond secrets and toward connection and growth. And I thought that was a mm-hmm. really interesting, like, kind of expansion of what we had talked about earlier about, like, processing individual mm-hmm. trauma. No. Um, because it's, it's, it is individual, but it's also shared. And, like, leaning on other people sometimes can it's like a a ripple effect of secondary victims that just kind of Mm -hmm. continues and continues and continues to snowball. Yeah. And I think that, um, you, we, we adapt to the stressful situations that we're in. And when you, and you see uh, that article talks a lot about the, they did surveys of people to describe the styles of parenting that they experienced for the children of Holocaust survivors. And, you know, they showed that there was a lot more tendency toward, I can't remember all the things that were in the article, but it was like they're neurotic and controlling and, you know, all these kind of mm-hmm. things and, um, you know, a, a lack of trust. And it's like, it's it's sort of when you lay it all out, it's like, oh, well, no shit. But when you actually see what that, the effect that that has writ large on a whole group of people, mm. it's it's hugely impactful. And mm-hmm. yeah, I just think it's a really fascinating field. I, I'm really interested to see how uh, these studies grow, uh, in particular regarding intersectionality mm-hmm. uh, in Black and African American communities. There's um, rampant homophobia. We know um, transgendered women are murdered. Mm-hmm daily. Uh, uh, no one's talking about that. Um, and so I really hope that if you're in this field and you're listening, <laughs> yeah. you dig a little bit deep into that. Um, and, and, um, yeah. Yeah. It's something that I can tell you that I work with middle school students and I work in a community that is predominantly African-American, Haitian, and Cape Verdean. And in my office, like there's a giant Black Lives Matter flag, and a giant LGBT rainbow flag that hangs behind me. So when I'm on camera, because my students are all remote right now, they see that like they're being, hopefully seeing a level of support. And then my door last year, I just had like the rainbow flag sticker. And I had about six students come out to me in a really casual way last year. It was like, oh yeah, I'm bi or, you know, just that like, it was like very, very casual. Like, hey, great. There is like within our school, like rampant homophobia in terms of like the remarks that are are made. And it's a difficult conversation. It's like, think of the slurs that are used towards you every day. Think of the words that are your hot button, you know, that are offensive, that really hurt. Why are we using those words for another community in this room? Like, why would you do that? And trying to get them to see And it's difficult, I think, because honestly, when you're in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, your brain doesn't quite go there. So it's a a process to try to teach them. You know, it's funny. Uh, That reminded me of uh, when I was in line to vote at some point, and these two Black women in front of me said, we can't, I don't even know, because then they're going to open up our churches and we're going to have to let them get married. Mm -hmm. And I'm listening to this conversation and I was like, 
wait, is that what no. you're saying? And I didn't say anything because I've had to learn how to speak up. But what I wanted to say is, but this is what X community was saying about mm-hmm. us X no. years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there is something to, I, I don't know if this has been studied, but you, I've seen it in life is that idea of like shit rolls downhill where, you know, oppressed mm-hmm. groups yeah. will want to oppress. And I mean, I could say some things here about why Israel is psychologically the way that it is, you know, with it, with their tactics there because of a group of people that have run, you know, oppressed so much throughout human history are now turning around and oppressing their next door neighbors. It's, you know, pretty fucked up, but you know, it, 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 it is a, I think an innate human tendency um, that sometimes you see emerge in a larger systemic way. Well, and I think it all stems from the patriarchy, which I say the patriarchy, but it's really in America, it's really the white Christian patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And there's like that ideal, a white male Christian is the pinnacle of power and everything else is varying degrees. Like Val, I think you said earlier, proximity to whiteness. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I was thinking of it as a spectrum earlier, but I don't think it's that. I think it's more layers and everybody has different layers of oppression that they face and everybody really kind of, that's where intersectionality really comes into play. And that's something that I think has begun to be talked about a little more, but it's, it's really kind of, it seems to be a slippery term and I I hear people use it to mean diversity and that's (laughs) not what it means it's and but that's like what when you're looking at someone's intersectional oppression like you you just it takes looking at the person first as a human being and not part of a um, a a monolith like you said Mike like because everybody is going to have a different experience even people from Mm -hmm. exactly the same community are going to have different experiences because they're different people and it's just that willingness to get past doing the right things and being not racist in air quotes and actually looking at the way we treat other human beings you know no so really quick and I'll leave it at this I'll talk about my own experience as a counselor in this field and my understanding of what my responsibility is because I think it's really fascinating and I I, I don't this is like my own take on it um, from the education I've received and I could be off base um, and I won't profess to be an expert but my understanding like in the counsel community we often talk about five ethical principles or like pillars of of mental health counseling and we try to adhere to these they are the ideas of like the autonomy of the client um the ability to do like beneficence like basically you're benefiting the person you're helping non-malfeasance fidelity and then this last one which is relatively new in our field in terms of like what we try to adhere to is the idea of like justice in the field and we mean that in the way of like social or restorative justice so as a mental health counselor, one of the things that we have to look beyond, not just the person in front of us for that 45 minutes a week, but also what is our own responsibility in the communities that we serve and what that means to be a counselor within that community. It means reflecting on our own internal biases, because at the end of the day, we all have them. Like, as much as I would like to say, like, I am anti-racist, there are things that pop up reflexively in my head that are just implanted there um, through social conditioning, through upbringing, um, through experience. And it's on me at that point to kind of recognize what they are, why they're there and try to work through them. It's upon us, you know, we were just talking about creating a safe space within one's own community. 
looking at the impact, we often ask other cultures to assimilate to American culture and this idea that America is a melting pot. And at the end of the day, like to your point, Jen, when you have a melting pot, what you end up getting is like cream of mushroom soup, like this white bland <laughs> soup at the end of it, once you put everything into it. And as opposed to recognizing that, no, like when we have this diversity of culture and opinion, it actually makes your community a much richer, better place. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't just mean you have like a really good ethnic restaurant on your street corner that you can go to. It means like accepting the culture as a whole, recognizing where systemic racism exists and how that impacts the people that we serve. This idea like equality doesn't mean that everybody gets treated the same. And I think that's maybe the thing that we run into. When we think of equality, it means every single person gets treated the same or every single person receives the same tools. Mm -hmm. What equality means is that everybody is given the same opportunity to succeed and they're given the tools that they are needed uh, in order to be successful. Mm -hmm. So the analogy I'll give or the image I'll give is imagine there's a 10 foot high fence in front of you and there are people that are varying heights, say from four feet tall to six feet tall in front of you. If you gave everybody a four foot tall ladder, it wouldn't benefit every single person. So you're not giving everybody the same tools. You're giving them the tools that they are going to need in order to be successful. And I can tell you, I think about that a lot as a school counselor, because it's, I'm, I ask, are kids of color given the same resources and the same access to educational resources that white children are? Do they get the educational services they're entitled to if they have a disability? Or do we sometimes discount the fact they may have a learning disability and say, well, it's for other reasons they're not as successful in others and therefore they don't get it? Do they have the same advocacy from their parents that others do? I work in a community where English is often a second or third language for a lot of the families and there's a lot of misunderstanding that goes in around that. And if that's the case, if you have a parent that English is not their primary language, like do they have the same tools so that they're able to understand? Are we patient with them? Do we take the time? Our education may system probably looks a lot different from when they came from. Are they able to navigate that in a way? I would love to see a study done once we return to normal. How do kids from single parent homes fare? through remote learning versus how do children from like multi-children homes fare. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you the amount of times I've been trying to help a kid out on a Zoom call and he's had to stop to go like feed their little brother or sister or there's so much background noise and like, how do you learn in that environment? And are we making it equitable for everyone at that point? And if not, how do you? Mm -hmm. One of the things that's really important is recognizing that like, it's not up to our clients to teach us about their culture that that is something that we kind of have to do. Like we need to take the time to do it. Like I'm this much of their week. So we shouldn't be taking like any time from that 45 minutes to tell me about what it's like to grow up. Like you said, Val, you're from, your mom is from Puerto Rico. Like, mm -hmm. in, in, like and my dad's from Haiti. Yeah. Your dad's like, tell me what Haiti is like, you know, like, like that's not what they're here for. It's up to me to kind of learn about mm -hmm. those cultures and how it impacts them. It doesn't mean that I can't ask questions of them. It doesn't mean I can't get an insight or get clarification from them. And also, lastly, understanding the perceptions that other communities have about mental health and healthcare in general. 
So there's been a lot of articles recently in the African-American community and the distrust they have in mental health and the healthcare system in general. And I think there's a lot of valid reasons for that. I mean, you look at the Tuskegee experiment where you had black males that were basically injected by the US government with syphilis under the guise they were getting free healthcare. And the idea was like, we want guinea pigs so that we can study the effects of untreated syphilis. That would probably turn me off to doctors at that point. In my own field, like we've done a poor job of recruiting people of color into the field of counseling. So I've had parents tell me like, look, no offense, I want my kid to be seen uh, or at least have a mentor that looks like them because they'll understand that experience that much more. And it's like, great, let me try to find you somebody and how difficult that can sometimes be. Especially when you get into like insurance and, you know, like a lot of uh, mm-hmm. directories that are, of you know, who is covered in your network. You can't even sort them by by race or by area of expertise. And oftentimes, you know, it's a you're not going to want, you, you, you want a therapist that already understands your culture and your life experience. And um, I compiled a list of um, some to various directories and mm-hmm. of therapists who call themselves like culturally competent that we can yeah. definitely link to in the show notes because yeah. I think mm-hmm. that's a really relevant it's a, it's a conversation. Um, and lastly, like to that point, yeah. when you often hear like, well, why don't they just get themselves to therapy? And I mean, they isn't like anybody at this point. It's like, I think there's this tremendous mm-hmm. misunderstanding of how like, number one, a lot of people don't have access to it through their health insurance. It's either not covered or the copay is high enough that you just aren't going to be able to afford it. But number two, like the waiting list for therapy sometimes, we have a backlog of about a hundred or so people that are looking to get services in this one tiny agency that I work for right now, just our branch. Like there's a, we've been asked like, Hey, if you've had someone under your care for a long time, do you need to see them every week? Can we move to every other? Have they moved on? And can you take on more people just because like the backlog is so great right now for people that are looking for help? Yeah. And I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the um, one, the burden of talking about this and who it should fall on and the idea of mm-hmm. um, equity and misunderstanding of equity and equality. And the way that I think about it is, um, equality is everybody gets a pair of shoes equity is everybody gets a pair of shoes that fit and I think that when you have always gotten the pair of shoes that fit you it's hard to understand how somebody who gets a pair of shoes can't just do everything that you can do and you because it's hard for you to see that those shoes don't fit that's not what they need and it's that you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have boots you know and so it like filters down and if that's what you have grown up seeing and under not seeing understanding and that's what you're you've grown up being exposed to it's really hard to convince people that this racism does exist and that this is a microaggression and that this does hurt and that this is real. And so in like a lot of what I do um, is try to convince people that these things are offensive and that we should be taking these things seriously. And that like I'm speaking to my fellow white people right now, like we have to take some of the burden of that on ourselves because it is really like we're talking about trauma and we're talking about like really hard experiences. And I know my own personal like experiences, sometimes it's really hard to talk about. And I just 
I'm, I'm tired and I need somebody else to step in and I need somebody else to carry that. And also, unfortunately, a lot of white people are going to listen to white people and take more, put more stock into what they think than what a person of color or a non-white person would think. And so it's important that we take that mantle on ourselves but the trick is not centering ourselves like we're not talking about this because we're trying to be a good not racist person we're talking about this because we want to get better and it's really just a mind shift it's not a checklist it's not a I've read these five books so I'm good it's you have to really want to start solving the problem and I think that's where we falter a lot of times yeah it has to be a lifelong effort yeah yeah I think the more that this is talked about, um, you know, mental health issues, first of all, aren't talked about. Um, mm-hmm. And the idea of trauma and racial trauma is often pushed aside. But when there are white people talking about how it's mm-hmm. real, <laughs> the boogeyman <laughs> is real, it, it, it really, it does help. Um, and it takes that burden that adds stress. Um, it takes it off the shoulders of minoritized communities um, who are going to carry it anyway. And it takes us into the sunken place where oftentimes we're just frozen and we're like, okay, I'm just, I guess I have to be here now and, and live with what's going on around me. But, um, and then digging even deeper into some analogies, like you can't pull yourselves up by your bootstraps if you don't have boots, but also if you don't even know how to put them on. Like if this wasn't a thing in your life, have great, there's a pair of boots sitting next to me, or you know, I have a, a four foot ladder, but not only am I two feet tall, but the hole underneath me is 10 feet deep and no one taught me how to get out of that. There's just, there's a layer and the, the, the self-awareness in this room is really nice. <laughs> um, and I really, um, love that we're talking about this and then like how do we become self-aware and then how do we go deeper mm-hmm. and how do we go deeper it's t- it's step step by step and so maybe that's a good way to move into talking about specifics from the actual movie and we can start with the sunken place which I think is just fascinating and really kind of an eye-opener for me as I watched this movie it's not something that I had ever really thought about but it's horrifying the first time I saw this I didn't realize what the sunken place meant. And when I watched it again, I've only seen the movie twice, I realized that that is life. Um, So it kind of speaks to me like um, in order to be accepted as a a black and brown person, you just have to play the part, you know, stay or stay silent and um, do the work, right? Mm-hmm. chop the wood or clean the glasses and let the dominant group call the shots. And I, I, I feel that often, like I can go only so far. I can say only so much until I know I'm, I'm going to be shut down. Um, mm-hmm. So why go there? Because it's painful. And when I realized that's the, that was the role of the black people, like, Oh no, no, we look at the, all these black people around us. They're not really black people. They're just marionettes um, because, and I'm obviously speaking in generalities, but when we look at the system of oppression and systematic racism, that's the role black people get. You can be on the forefront as long as you fit within our ideals. Beyonce's fine. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I, um, 
I, I actually had a, about an hour today where I said, I don't even think I can talk about this because that hit me so hard. Mm. It really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, even now I'm, I'm, I know I'm guarded with my language because I can only say so much, I think, in a, in a public forum. But this is what we were saying in terms of these endings, these two endings, like what ending do do people need right now? The one where it's like, oh, this is reality. People are still racist and systematic racism has never has never not been a thing. Or do we need something uplifting? Uh, we need both. Mm-hmm. We need both. Um, both are a reality. There are moments of, oh my God, that person is the one I, I can trust or no, I'm a part of the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea of being a passenger really hit me the on the last time I watched it and just how devastating that would be and then just thinking about all of the implications and the different ways that that would manifest and still does you know and I see that with some of the work that I'm doing I see that like borne out every day on bigger scales and smaller scales and it is real and it still happens and and you know. I think it speaks to, I mean, the, the brilliance of the writing because it, um, it, this movie is like an empathy machine and what a really good metaphor or analogy can do is, is put you in that lived experience that you have never lived. And I think anyone can relate to that, the, the horror of being trapped in your body, but not unable, but unable to move or talk or, or operate um, just because, I don't know, like I've always had a fear of like having some kind of degenerative illness where that basically happens to you. Um, and I think that it's just such a in like lizard brain human fear of being like trapped and you know sleep paralysis and all these things. But it is also the perfect metaphor for what you just described, Val. Uh, and I and I think that it's just a it's a it's a brilliant visual. It's a brilliant piece mm-hmm. of writing. Um, every way that they and and by having Catherine Keener's character as the mom, uh, a psychiatrist who forces her way into your head with a little teacup, it really speaks to like that lack of autonomy and um, the, the puppeteering. And, and it's like you referenced the Tuskegee experiment, um, these, the way that our institutions have, have treated uh, black Americans, you know, um, throughout the course of this country's history. And yeah, it, it, it's, this is like one of those movies you walk out of it and you're like, I've got no notes. Like usually I'll come out of a movie being like, Oh, if they had just done this one little thing different that, that really, that mm-hmm. idea would have been perfect. But this movie, it's like, nailed it like it's it's perfect well and there's another key and peel sketch that reminds me of this too and it's um the anger interpreter where it's um barack obama yeah yeah and the idea that this is his pulled together persona because god forbid he look he expresses actual emotions and then there's the internal Mm -hmm. rage that is just like the constant microaggressions and key and peel is a great show. <laughs> no, I get what you're saying. Yes, you have someone good. that was, you, I mean, it's funny because this came up a little bit when Biden was running for president and whether or not like he had been vetted enough for the job and if there were any skeletons in the closet there. And there was this idea that I'd read like, look, in 2008, you had Barack Obama, a man who has like a Middle Eastern sounding name who's like a freshman senator from Illinois, who's black running for president, who has like absolutely zero margin for error and had to be extremely careful in anything and everything that he said and did, because it would have any, any era in speaking and mannerism 
would have been amplified to such an nth degree that he wouldn't have taken the time to vet anyone and everybody that was going to come into his orbit. That had come up as an idea of why you know, Biden might be the right person for the gig at that point. But Obama for eight years had to be very careful in everything that he said and did because number one, he was carrying the hopes of the identity for like millions of people on his shoulder. And I can't imagine the enormous amount of pressure that would come from that. And he was given, he was basically forced to live it up to an ideal that I don't think any person could live up to. Yeah. And just the the political movement that grew quietly Mm. during his administration, Mm -hmm. which was first called Mm -hmm. the Tea Party, and then eventually sort of went through its horrible Mm -hmm. werewolf-like transformations into Trumpism, you know? I really think a lot of the Mm -hmm. the rage that you see in that that movement uh, is just a knee-jerk racist response to the fact that Obama became president. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I mean, that's oversimplifying it a Mm -hmm. a bit, but I I really think that that just that, like, that low-simmering, just racist rage, and then when Trump was elected president— you saw such a spike in hate crimes, such a spike in hate mm-hmm. speech. Um, Southern Poverty Law Center has done a lot of really good studies, you know, really showcasing exactly how true mm-hmm. that is. And it's like the, you know, people say that like arc of history bends toward justice, but what that statement doesn't capture is all the little pendulum swings that happen within mm-hmm. within those moments of history that we are yeah. unfortunately you know living through. Um, and I, I think we we mm-hmm. saw that with what the last four years have been it was just the the ugly hatred that was growing while while we were a lot of right. white people were pretending racism was over. And I think that's what's interesting about this movie is it's not a movie about the Tea Party movement. Mm-hmm. It's not a movie about white supremacy and the way we typically think about it. I think that there's this idea that, and I, we've discussed before to a certain extent, that when we talk about racism, we often give it this caricature that it's a person wearing a Confederate flag belt buckle underneath his clan robes while blasting, you know, Dixie, you know, like basically I was singing like I would, you know, singing Dixie, like we give it that kind of personification. And that is not the way that racism typically exists in 2021 America at this point. And again, that it's baked into the system. This is a very much a movie about persons like myself that consider themselves again, you know, from Massachusetts, born and raised near the Boston area, the joke in Cambridge is it's the People's Republic of Cambridge, that this idea that like, oh, it's been defeated. Like we now live in a quote unquote post-racial society at this point, and we really don't. There's this idea that like we can now take our foot off the gas a little bit and not look at the real structures that are in place. And I think we go two ways with it. We often don't look at our own internal biases, but we often amplify the biases of others Mm -hmm. in a way that I would call like real performative Mm -hmm. wokeness that we shout down others that maybe are on the same page but different paragraph than us they're they may have an understanding of where where we were six months or a year or years ago they may have not arrived at the same conclusions as us they may not hold true to all they want to get to the same place, but maybe see a different road to get there. And we will mm-hmm. shout them down as opposed to having a conversation because we want to show how beyond it we are, how woke we are. Um, and if we can, and I think social media is the driving factor behind this because like, it's all about in some ways getting likes, getting attention, 
And the louder we shout, the more, the more true it must be at that mm-hmm. point. I don't know if that makes sense, but this is very much a movie about that kind of performative wokeness, that performative allyship that doesn't really, isn't real. And you have a, a line in here, Jen, in your notes that I was curious. I think it ties into that where uh, underperformative white guilt, <laughs> which is also a mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. really good album title. Um, oh, you know, <laughs> if you, you become a racist when you justify the behavior. I'm curious about yeah. your thoughts on that. Mm-hmm. Well, I was listening to a podcast talking about this movie and one of the things, and I, they were paraphrasing an article but one of the lines from it was how can America be so full of racism without being full of racists and I think there's this tendency for us to do what Mike was saying like well I don't have a confederate flag in my yard I'm one of the good ones you know I'm I'm I voted for Obama you know and I think like that's something that we really see here is that there's a checklist and there's a code that white people use to perform this safeness that is not actually real and I think at the core of that Speaking from personal experience, a lot of that comes from defensiveness of really like when we look at the Armitages, they're evil. They want to use that against um, Chris. But I think like I in order for me to really understand what racism is and how I am supporting a racist system, I have to look at some things that I've said and done in the past and say that was probably racist. That was an, a misunderstanding. That was a stereotype. That was, you know, like w- I think everybody, we said earlier, everybody has some kind of bias because we're humans. And that doesn't make us inherently a bad person. What makes it dangerous and what makes that bias bad is when we're not aware of it and when we are not aware of how it hurts other people or when we use it to hurt other people. But I think that takes really looking at, like I have to really look at some of the things that I've said and I have to be willing to say I made a mistake and I can change it. And that's been, that was really the, the awakening that I needed was that like it, it matters what I said before, but I know so many people that get so defensive yep. and they will not make that. They will not say that was probably a little bit racist. Like, I think there's some Avenue Q song. <laughs> yeah, everyone's a little bit racist sometimes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I've never heard the song, so I can't really, I don't know if I should be saying it, but like everybody is. And we have to be able to admit that without like letting the shame of that shut us down because that's what creates the walls, you know? Yeah, I feel like if we think we're doing the work, we better have a really good buddy who's going to tell us to check our privilege Mm -hmm. constantly, like everybody, it doesn't matter who you are, Um, because if you don't have that self-awareness and that that ability to be self-reflective, you're going to be defensive. Mm -hmm. Um, Harvard has a really great um, site through Project Implicit, I think it is, where you can take an implicit bias test, (laughs) which is fabulous. Mm -hmm. Like, this should be required work. Mm -hmm. And then your buddy can help you, you know, analyze that. Um, No matter how much we think we're doing, we probably can't do it by ourselves because impact carries greater weight than um, than intent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you can't see that, you're just going to, you're just going to be screaming the same, whatever's on your protest sign Mm -hmm. or you know, posting mm-hmm. that stuff on social media, which I think is quite, I haven't, I don't think I've posted much in the past year because I'm like, I just feel like at this point, um, the work that I'm, I, I'm doing, I, I don't, 
I don't want to put it in that space because it's become so bogged mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. with nothing. So a lot of good, but a lot yeah, of nothing. Social right. media yeah. has its own issues. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I was going to say, I think to that point, uh, if you are a white person that is investing and in doing this work, pick another white person to be your buddy to talk to about this. Mm-hmm. Don't turn to a person of color and say like, am I doing good? Am I doing right? Mommy, am I okay? You know, you have to, you, you can't put that burden. I think that was kind of, we were talking about that earlier too. Just the emotional burden of these conversations is incredible. And um, you should not look to somebody that is in the oppressed group uh, (laughs) to be, to be your like, you know, little, like you did good buddy. Yeah. Because, because Google's out there. Yeah. Because then it's really not about, changing any sort of structural system at that point. It's really mm-hmm. about making yourself feel good. Uh-huh. Yes. That's really what it becomes about. And we see this when we're overly apologetic towards people. It's really not because you feel really sorry for what you've done. It's because you want to be excused for what you've done. And you put that burden on another person to kind of forgive you at that point rather than deal with what the real issue is at that point. And I think there's a part of us like says like you know like oh but as an ally let me tell you why you're wrong it's like no fuck that noise like let me shut the hell up for a minute and listen like mm-hmm. why do you feel this way like i do not know better than you yeah. yeah well and talking about kind of like getting yourself a buddy i feel like that's where we kind of see these safe and unsafe places and like val that's one of the things that i really value about our relationship is that i feel like you and I can have really honest conversations and you will tell me, but that has taken us working together for about two mm-hmm. years. Like you have to build a lot of trust there. And, uh, and that it was working on other things that were not about this. It was just, and you just getting to know each other. And I feel like the Armitages, they, it's like they've presented this situation where, well, the, these are the checklists. This is the thing that I do to present mm-hmm. the safe environment. Why don't you feel safe around me? You know? And I think that's why we see, like, we see Chris constantly apologize for his feelings and, like, kind of skirt up to talking to Rose about these issues. Like, one of the things I really noticed this time was how he is constantly diminishing his own feelings to avoid upsetting mm-hmm. everyone else. And with Rose as well. And the thing, fucking Rose pisses me off so much and I've got more thoughts about her for probably later but she is playing into this role of like creating this safe space kind of like she doesn't go all the way there because she doesn't want him to feel completely safe you know because that would disrupt this whole narrative and it's just so such an understanding of this and using it against Chris that I found really cold let's talk about the scene then specifically with the traffic officer yeah, because I think that's the best example of that in this movie. In mm-hmm. that, uh, Chris understands the game that he has to play very mm-hmm. much. So, so it's a routine. Mm-hmm. You know, they hit this deer. Uh, is it a deer? I thought it was like a bird. Well, I think to it's be a deer. Honest, oh, it's a deer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's a whole deer um, symbolism thing. Fair enough. But so they hit this deer, and pretty routine thing. The officer checks in as he could, and then he asks Chris for his ID. There's no need for it. Like. Chris wasn't even driving for one. So he's just a passenger in the car. And the officer reflexively asks Chris for his ID because, hey, there happens to be like a black person in a very white space right now. So, of course, um, 
And Chris like hands it over because he understands like there's a game that has to be played mm-hmm. here. It's like, if I were to say no, or if I were to question it, there's a really good chance that I'm either A, going to be escorted off in handcuffs for being disorderly, or B, I could get shot if things really escalate. And Rose gives it back to the cop. And the look on Chris's face as she's doing this, it's almost bemusement because he very much understands that like she is performing for him and that both Chris and Rose and the officer all understand there are going to be no repercussions for Rose for this conversation. She's protected by her whiteness, by her privilege, and really by her affluence that there's nothing bad is going to happen to her here. So she can give the cop shit at that point. And Chris understands that. And Chris, when he looks at her, he's not grateful for her for standing up for him at that mm-hmm. point. He's like, I know what you're doing. You don't have to do it. And really, you think you're doing me a favor. You're really just proving my point. And I think it's a real division that exists. Even if Rose didn't turn out the way she did, there is this bridge that exists between them. I don't want to say that they're never going to gap, but that would be very difficult to gap, and they're pretty far away from being able to do so. Well, and by doing that, she is putting him in danger also. Like, she is Mm -hmm. escalating the situation, and there's a privilege there because it's not going to fall on her. But that's when I'm saying, like, white people, we have to believe this is real because if Chris is telling her, no, no, this puts me in danger, like, we have to listen because that is the reality. And there's also a, a like 4D chess read of that moment also because Rose is doing this knowing that this is what Chris will think she's doing, that she's trying to be the like mm-hmm. performative, support, mm-hmm. quote unquote, supportive white girlfriend. But really, she didn't want the cop to see his ID because then if he came up mm-hmm. on a missing persons mm-hmm. report, mm-hmm. Um, he would be like, oh, that yeah. was that black guy I saw on the road, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and especially, you know, especially because it was a mostly white area. I didn't even think right. Of that. And <laughs> so so that just it's another moment where like on the second watch of the movie, you just go like, oh, my God, she's so evil. She's so mm-hmm. calculated in every single thing she does along the way that even then, you know, she was ready for that to happen. And. That's just that chilled me the moment that I realized it. And that's such good writing. Mm-hmm. There's so many things early in the in the first 30 minutes of the film that are like hiding in plain mm-hmm. sight little things that the characters say or do that hint at what mm-hmm. is to come and you don't really get it until the second watch. Um mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I wrote down a bunch of them, but you know, just listen to like yeah. all of the dialogue, especially Bradley Whitford when he when he first oh. gets to the the uh the lake house and he's giving him a tour. Yeah. There's all kinds of little hidden hidden one-liners in there. Yeah, the mold mm-hmm. in the basement is the one that. that yes, the out. black mold. Yeah, yeah. That first cop car that came into the picture was, for me, just such a horrific scene. Like, and even when it was over, and you're like, oh, okay, he's alive. <laughs> it was still horrific. And mm-hmm. like, regardless, like if Rose's character, like you were saying, hadn't been Rose, mm-hmm. um, it still would be so horrific. Um, horrific behavior mm-hmm. uh and unjustifiable that's that's when i'm like did you feel mm-hmm. that was your heart racing yeah. or is it just yeah it's like no no yeah. it's i mean it's horrifying I, it's that this movie plays with all those ten, the tension and expectations and what you think might happen so well that you know it really ramps up to that last mm-hmm. act that final act where you know from the moment that he wakes up in the basement onward and it's such a tremendous mm. payoff for the way the tension is ramped up and it it works on uh, you know, reality-based level and on a crazy horror movie narrative level. 
I just can't get over what a perfectly constructed yeah. movie it is. Um, I know. Um, yeah. And that's where the generational trauma, I think, comes in because Chris has that hypervigilance because, and he is has to be very attuned to the nature of the police officer to know what's okay. Like I see the scene opens and he's looking away and I thought even maybe depending on who the, poli- the cop was, mm-hmm. maybe even not facing the cop during this scene might be seen as something aggressive. Mm-hmm. And it just is like you you're born into the situation where you, that's just your lived experience and you you get this ability to code switch and play by the rules that we were talking about and i i want to talk about georgina and walter also because uh, this this thing this idea of code switching i think has fascinated me and kind of horrified me too when i think of people that have had to do that around me like I don't want to be one of the people that causes that kind of reaction and then I start to evaluate things that I say and do and how can I actually make myself feel like a safe person and I go back and forth through virtue signaling also because I as a person who like has had trauma and it feels oppression from the patriarchy like I want to know who the safe people are and mm-hmm. I want them to say it out loud but then there's that other layer of the unsafe people are not going to tell you that they're unsafe. You know, yeah, if somebody was like, don't worry, I'm safe. I would become very instantly worried. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. The, the code switching thing. I think that's like what, what Chris picks up on when he's speaking to Georgina Walter and later Andre is like the complete mm-hmm. lack of the black, like, like lived experience in them, you know, because he, he does code switch. He, he talks to them as his authentic self instead of the mask he's wearing around all the other party goers mm-hmm. and, and Rose's family. And when he sees none of that reflected back at him, it's kind of like it's it's played for a little bit of dark comedy, but it's also just like completely chilling because then he's like, oh, shit, Sinister. like ex- like something right. is really, really deeply wrong here. Right. And it's just such a like mm-hmm. subtle thing that they, they work into the film and it. Again, I'm just everything. I'm going to end every statement with like, what good filmmaking? But um, exactly. But no, it's when you really get this idea that something is sinister because like, and like as a white audience member, when you look at the way that Georgina talks, you're like, that doesn't seem right. And it's like, you know, who am I to ascribe like quote unquote black characteristics onto a character at that point? But at the same time, like that's what the movie's fucking doing. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, it is what it is. So, and yeah. it does it in a really fun way. It's like, it's Peel saying like, like you and I both know, like Georgina's not talking like this right now. And I'm sorry, is it Howard? Is that the other? Walter, I can't think. I think. Walter. So, so, you know, like when, what is like Georgina calls it like shenanigans at one mm-hmm. point? Like, right. you know, it's like people like, people of that age any color don't say shit well actually i say shenanigans all the time so I'm <laughs> shit. So it's a fun word um but you're like when they're looking at like the the nomenclature and just like the the language that would be used it's like that is the first key that like something is wrong here is that language is mm-hmm. gone and also i like this idea of like walter like basically running wind sprints every night in a mm-hmm. black body because like he was not able to get into the olympics 1936 olympics so he still was like running wind sprints outside every single that's, night that's one of yeah. the lines that bradley whitford said that i was trying to think of a moment ago when he's looking at the photos with chris and he you know he says something yep. like um must have been must have been tough on your dad though and he's like yeah he almost yeah. got over it almost got which over is just it. like mm-hmm. oh like, yeah. <laughs> that's an understatement <laughs> like yeah it's yeah it, right. it, and it's so sinister on second yeah. watch too yeah right and it's one of those things that moment in particular is like when bradley whitford is like going so far out of his way at that point to show that he is some sort of ally like that's the moment mm-hmm. that really stuck out like 
not the my man. Oh, that's a really weird thing to say. <laughs> I say weird things. Like I call everybody captain and I call everybody chief. It doesn't matter who you are because anyone can be a captain. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. like, hey, what's going on, captain? It's just like, you know how we talk about saying guys or <laughs> That's where my, like, my pilgrims comes from, you know? Pilgrims, oh, yeah. There you go. Partner, so, maybe. <laughs> but he's going like, so he's going, but in this particular moment where he's like, what he could be saying, like, you know, my dad came like, an ass hair away from making the Olympics, but he just, he went up against Jesse Owens, like the greatest sprinter until we get to like Carl Lewis in 1984. Like, can you believe it? Or Usain Bolt now, like, can you believe it? But to say like, you know, and just to rub it in Hitler's face, like we get it, dude, you don't like right. Hitler. How surprising, you know, like shocker upon shockers, Hitler is bad, we know. Uh, but to be like, what a great thing for everybody. And then Chris is like, you know, yeah, well, your dad still didn't get to go to the Olympics, man. Like, you don't have to put on this huge act for me. It's like, that's the moment. I think we see like a lot of persons who believe their allies, like they mm -hmm. go so over the top instead of like acting like a human being. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it just, it feels weird. It just is like, it doesn't, it's just not, it's not good. It's really not good. And I'll tell you, it's not good because I get it every day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I get the, um, I've always gotten, you sound white. I'm like, really? Because I'm me, always mm -hmm. gotten it. Um, and then all of that, uh, obviously I know Spanish and we talk about all the Spanish stuff and then all the black things that that person knows they can bring up in a conversation with me. And, and what do I do? I sit in the sunken place and I nod my head because that's the mm -hmm. easiest way to get out of it. Mm -hmm. Horror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to out myself right here. I'm guilty of that. Yeah, but yeah. that's okay. Cause that's self-awareness. Yes. Right open acknowledgement mm -hmm. i mean this is how like you talked about reconciliation you have to yeah. genuinely feel remorse um and we are all we all do that and we're all gonna go man i messed that up wow. but if you can't go past it that's where the issue is. yeah and don't put the burden on the person that you're talking mm -hmm. to you know th those are just little tips and tricks <laughs> i don't know yeah <laughs> Can we talk about the opening of the movie? Can we talk about Andre mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that opening? Because I think like as someone who loves horror, I think the only other example I've seen, and it was not done nearly as well as it's like the first shot of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where like Darla leads a person into the, and you think, oh, it's the young blonde and this, she's going to get attacked and she turns around and she's a vampire and it's Darla and it's wonderful. <laughs> this like, what's great about this is Andre like is in what looks like to any of us a really safe space. Like it looks like this like tree-lined, well-lit, affluent neighborhood. I mean, the houses are like a hundred yards apart from one another. It's this beautiful area. Unlike your typical horror movie trope, it's usually a, a young white woman who doesn't even realize she's in danger until it's too late. It's like the roach being in the roach motel at that point. There's no way of getting out until you're, it's too late. Andre very quickly knows like, this is not a place that I should be right now. And it's not, it's not because he's in danger, but because he's going to be perceived as dangerous mm -hmm. for being in that space. I mean, he kind of understands like, there is no reason, people are going to think there is no reason for me to be in this area right now. So he knows that he has to get out of there and he's quick like, he sees the car swing around and he's like, nope, that is not a good thing. Uh, I'm picking up on that right away and I'm just going to go in this direction. And I thought that was like, for someone like that is your opening statement and your directorial debut. Mm -hmm. And you've basically boiled the genre down to it's like, 
finest point in like God love you. I mean, yeah. Right well, there. and what do you want to say to him? You want to say the title card that comes up immediately mm-hmm. after Get Out, which mm-hmm. is the title of the movie, which I think is a mm-hmm. play on like talking to the screen and, you know, and be mm-hmm. having that hypervigilance and watching. And I don't mm-hmm. have the experience of watching a movie as an African-American, but I have heard in horror noir I'm um, talking about like you immediately know that the situation is rough but this character because it's been written by a white person continues to go through these motions mm-hmm. and I think we see this in female characters too like the audience's intuition is kicking in and mm-hmm. the that's the hypervigilance of living through living with this generational trauma mm-hmm. that white men who have written like just the majority of movies in history don't get because they right. don't have to experience it. And I, I think this, the suburban setting also, I mean, so many horror movies take place in the suburbs and it's always about some kind of evil force invading the suburbs. Mm-hmm. That is the slasher right. genre in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. And so again, Jordan Peele, huge horror nerd, he understood that so so implicitly and, and lays that out as the, as the setting, the no. evil is coming from inside the house in this case, you know? Uh-huh. And yeah. you could take the phrase, like we're talking about biases in movies and the experience of like living within this movie. And you could take the phrase, get out as a warning, the title of the movie, get out. It's a warning. It's what Andre says to Chris in that moment of clarity, but you can also take that same phrase and use it in a different context. We like, get out. Like, mm-hmm. telling me that racism exists, like, get out. Tell Stop me you don't feel so comfortable sensitive. here. Get out. Exactly. Like, there's a way you can take that phrase as well that it's less of a warning and more of a dismissiveness mm-hmm. to it. And I think that's kind of like the wonderful kind of play on words that you get with this with this film as well. So Also, get out of my head, you crazy white mm-hmm. person. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, this might not make it and that it was probably okay but I've had two instances where I've been talking to Jen one where I was walking and I'm in this tiny little neighborhood this teeny little suburb and this car kept going by and it probably went to look at the the house that had the for sale sign but I was like it's (laughs) (laughs) yeah me and then I was looking out the window and this car stops and this loud music is playing and this black guy gets out and he's doing something with his shoes and doing, and I wanted to open my window and say, mm-hmm. get out. Don't you know where mm-hmm. you are? Like someone is going to call the cops on you. Mm-hmm. I just hate how real this movie is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that I had a hard time kind of piecing apart on the first watch was the, I did not understand the fetishism that I think we see Mm. in this movie of black bodies um, because I was like, well, but they want to be black people. They want to, and it it took me a while to really understand. They don't want to be them. They want to control them. And it's this, that's, that's, they want to pull the strings and it's just another form of enslavement. But we do see, especially at the party, like a lot of the microaggressions are this fetishization, fetishization, of black people and black bodies for um, perceived abilities and stereotypes and that is really uh, unsettling and I had an experience the other day where I saw a microaggression happen and it really clicked into place what that is because I was a part of the reception the receiving end of it and I was watching at, that was before I watched that for this episode blah, 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 I'm stumbling um and so I was looking at this party and I was like holy shit it's mm-hmm. just rampant it, it is rampant and it's it's 
what I've got such great skin because I don't burn, right? And oh my gosh, I'd love to have your skin and and oh, can um, I touch your big hair? lips and big butts and all of these physical characteristics are really appealing unless you're black. Mm -hmm. And they somehow justify having all of that and being black, I guess, just because now they have it and they're in their own little society. And so nobody's going to. Yeah. And I think do anything. I think, you know, it's also commenting on, you know, we live in a country where we like worship so many black celebrities, like you mentioned, Beyonce, we have, you know, you have and the history of America is like, you know, admiring black entertainers but at the same time if that black entertainer walked into a white neighborhood they'd get shot by cops so it's this really bizarre dichotomy in america where blackness is fetishized and put into these categories and you and you want to be like that but at the same time like we are completely treating this the system is treating black people unjustly and so i think that this is playing with that tension and it's like the one old the one guy says something like well being black is cool now, you know, and it's, right. you right. know, so I think that that's the, that scene of the party goers is playing with that tension. And it's, it's played for humor. And there's that, there's the scene with Rose and one of the like older women who they speak to one another, like Chris isn't even in the room, let mm-hmm. alone right in front of them where she makes a direct reference. Like, is it true? Talking about Chris's dick size, Ugh. which is, you know, like, and like Chris is like standing right there, and then she goes so far as to start feeling Chris's bicep up, like he's a ripe cantaloupe in the middle of the produce aisle, and it's played for a laugh. But you see, like again, like Chris knowing that he has to play the game and understanding what's expected of him. One of the things about this movie is is when you look at Chris, when you look at um, his eyes, they're constantly red rimmed. And they're constantly exhausted. And there's this feeling of like, we think of our own flight and fight response. We think of adrenaline right now. And when our adrenaline, when our reserves are depleted, how exhausting that is after the fact. And for Chris, like he has to basically spend days on end with his fight and flight response up at that point. And he just looks so tired throughout this movie because he can't be his authentic self. And the only times you see, even when he starts talking to Georgina and Walter, he still talks in like more hushed tones at first, even when they're alone with one another. And then when they start speaking to him, his guard is immediately back up because Mm -hmm. he doesn't recognize any of himself in them. The only time, the two times you see him in the movie be his real self or when he's talking to uh, Ron on the phone. He mm-hmm. kind of drops all pretense at that point and he gets to speak as himself and the scene where like he wants the keys. Mm-hmm. Like he just, he's had it at that point. He knows he's in danger. And that's when like the hyper-masculine male comes out. Like his voice drops at least two octaves at that point. He's got more, he's more straight. He's on high alert at that point And he's just not fucking around because he can't at that point. He knows like, if I don't drop the pretense, like I am going to get killed at this point. But that's the only time he can ever be authentic. Aside from that, he's always, even when he's with Rose by the lake and telling her of his experience with his mother and her, her dying, he still has to do it in a way that is more, he wants to leave without her. He's like, I don't care if you come with me. Mm. I need to get out of here. And that very quickly shifts to like, I wonder how she feels about this. 
Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things that I've talked about in therapy about my own fight or flight response is when you're living in a prolonged, dangerous situation that you can't escape, you have to just start ignoring those those responses like he can't really get out. I mean, he could. But is the conversation with Rose worth leaving when I can't really put my finger on what the danger is but I am like my red flags are going off and that's Mm -hmm. like the conversation at the lake and that there's damaging to you to have to constantly ignore all of those red flags and then you get to a point where you stop seeing them so much and that's Mm -hmm. when I feel like there there's a reading of Walter and Georgina that I think is really interesting and I found a quote about it it's um from an article that I'm going to link get out proves that nice racism and white liberalism are never to be trusted um and at the end it says it also implicitly addresses the distrust black people often have for one another because of brainwashing at the Armitage estate we see that the only time Chris begins to feel more comfortable is when he sees two other black people Walter and Georgina he quickly realizes though that something is amiss and that they are nearly in sync with the Armitages get out critically examines the problems of aligning with whiteness and how white supremacy can be used to divide black people and I think it's that quote of the the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist and that's what I think white supremacy really that's why it still persists or that's one of the reasons is that so many white people support it but don't understand that they are and it's not even white people it's the the, it's just so insidious because the system was built on it Mm -hmm. And that's why we have to we have to be vigilant, like constantly aware. Because like, am, am I metacognitive of, the, of 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 my own brainwashing? Like, I I have to question my responses to people and my reactions to things because I grew up in this system. Mm-hmm. And so when when Georgina and Walter responded, I was like, oh, there's nothing like there's something wrong but there's probably nothing wrong there like this isn't where the suspense is in the movie Mm -hmm. because that is so real yeah it's when they don't flip back i think yeah that's the key is that they don't have that code switching gear because they just Mm -hmm. have internalized this role that they play literally because it's in their head and that's one of the things that i was really thinking about this time is that when they're at the party there is a kind of mind control in presenting this situation where we don't have to state the rules. Everybody knows what the rules are. Chris knows what they are. He's going to play by them and we're all going to play our parts of being the good ones. Um, And is that the same as having someone's brain literally in your head? Like I think the control, the level of control is not physically the same, but it is essentially the same. I'd say that. I mean, you know what, how this person's going to react and what you're supposed to say to to make sure that that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So it's not a physical um, takeover, but it's there. Yeah. And um, I wanted to read one more quote from this article on the legacy of trauma, um, just in relation to being in a prolonged period of stress and what that does physiologically to the body. And this is where we get, I just want to get a little bit of discussion around epigenetics into there because I think it's it's just really interesting. And I think that when we think about stress, we just forget how much it can damage the body and can damage mm. your health. And, you know, you think of mental well-being, but it really does also impact your physical well-being. And these things are all tied together. Um, so I'm just going to read this little quote again. The study they're referring to is Holocaust survivors, but I think you 
if this kind of area of study was expanded further, I guarantee, and I'm very confident that you will see these results be replicable. Okay. Taking a more direct look at possible epigenetic transmission is psychologist Rachel Yehuda, PhD, director of the Traumatic Stress Studies Division at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. She and colleagues have found, for example, that children of Holocaust survivors with PTSD have lower rates of methylation, one type of epigenetic mechanism in a particular stress-related glutocorticoid, oh my God, in a particular (laughs) stress-related glutocorticoid receptor, the GF1F, than children of survivors who did not have PTSD. More recently, the team has been looking directly at epigenetic changes across generations. In a well-known study comparing methylation rates in 32 Holocaust survivors and 22 of their children with those of matched controls, they found that those survivors and their children showed changes in the same location of the same gene, a stress-related gene linked to PTSD and depression, while controls did not. Mm. And I know it's a little dry, but mm. it's, it's you know, it's... I think I understood about six words of that. <laughs> well, I mean, if you really are, if you want me to break it down, which is technically my job as a, as a no, scientist, I... I mean, but, you know, it's, it's really talking about how prolonged stress has an impact at the genetic level and that is passed from generation to generation so when you oppress a, a pe- when you oppress a whole people you're not just fucking with those people you're fucking with their children and their children's children yes. and just like mm-hmm. what a monstrosity that is um and that mm-hmm. again it, it filters right into the idea of like you know not, every, not everybody is you know born uh on home plate some people are born on you know first plate second plate you know that that it can be at a, at a at a fundamental level and there's so many factors feeding mm-hmm. into it um and I just think it's a really uh, important area for future research. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And that that, yeah. <laughs> that has made me think about the way that I am with my own kids. And as is my stress that am I because they'll say occasionally like mommy always has headaches and like they know that like they don't make loud noises in the bathroom because it tends yeah. to echo and really bother me. And it just kind of breaks my heart a little bit but then on the other hand if I'm raising empathetic kids who care Mm. about the feelings of other people then you know I guess that's good we haven't really talked about Catherine Kinnear's mom fuck her sorry Um, (laughs) I got so mad at her this time well her I mean every time her performance is so I mean every character in the in the Armitage family is sinister in a different way uh-huh. And her performance and is brilliant. Yeah. yeah, she's great. Sorry, don't fuck Catherine Keener. Fuck um, unless she unless she wants to. Yeah, you to. I know. Like we sort Woo. of said, you know, I mean, um, yeah. only if she's asking very explicitly for you to do that. But uh, that's right. I just that yeah. She. I mean, her character is unspeakably evil, and that performance really sells that. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. It's the way she gets this look in her eye when she's looking at Chris, right. and you know, there's all these shots of her just kind of glaring. And like Bradley Whitford yes. maintains this very bland veneer, and she maintains she she comes off very warm, you know, uh, and, and like she's trying to be really genuine, but then you just like see this behind her eyes, right. and it's uh it's chilling. Yeah, one of the um, principles of our profession is informed consent, and this idea mm-hmm. that like when someone is seeking treatment like they know what they're getting into and you're explaining it to them and it's like comes up at every intake and we check in on it um it's something i try to do very often like we're going to talk about these things or do we have permission you know to talk about what we're going over here with others and letting someone know what they're getting into like not only the benefits of counseling but also like the drawbacks to it and how like 
Jen, you've talked about your experience in therapy and how you can come out of it feeling like a fucking wreck sometimes Mm -hmm. because you're doing some really heavy lifting at that point. Yep. See a recent selfie that I took that was a post-therapy Jen Mm -hmm. selfie. Yeah. So (laughs) letting people know, like sometimes it will, you will come out of this feeling like a pile of hot trash because Mm -hmm. uh, we are going to push some buttons. And I will tell I will be upfront with clients sometimes when I think that they are putting off diving into some of their trauma because it's going to hurt them. And I will call them out might be too strong a word, but I might gently say, I think some we're getting wrapped up on some details right now that might not be relevant because you know that we're going to pursue some really heavy things and that might be difficult for you. I want to check in to make sure that's okay. Uh, and sometimes, depending on how long I've been with them, I might be a little bit more blunt. I'm like, you're avoiding talking about this right now. Like, <laughs> yeah. But that's like, that comes from building the relationship with the mm-hmm. patient, yeah. you know? Yes. Miss uh, Catherine Kinnear's mom does absolutely none of yes, this. Thanks. She just like dives right in. She's like, mm-hmm. oh, it's nice to meet you. Hope you had a good dinner. Tell me about your dead mother. Yeah. Like, she like, plays you know, She plays just... on his guilt too, mm-hmm. you know, because Chris is a character, uh, aside from the larger themes of the film, is dealing with some very intense personal guilt and pain mm-hmm. over feeling like he allowed his mother to die as a child, even though mm-hmm. it was not his, you know, he could not really have do- effectively done anything. Yeah. Um, and she she is her character is so good at like picking and i'm sure that rose was was you know telling mama you know what 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 his deal mm-hmm. was and all of his fears and stuff like that because she could immediately latch onto that and use it to control him and and hers representing the institution of psychiatry is is really mm-hmm. disturbing right and i know that there is like there is a distrust of the mental health industry among the amongst a lot of African Americans, like within that community, um, it is sometimes there is distrust there. Like that is one of the things we talked about with, you know, in my multicultural class. Like it's something that you're going to have to work to overcome sometimes, um, and there are many reasons for that. That um, in some ways are very institutional. This idea of like you don't snitch, you don't give up other people at that point. This idea that like no, we are very private persons. Um, so you could see why I think it's um, it's not just that like the mom is a hypnotist, but she's a therapist as well. Like she's an actual psychiatrist. I think that there's like a, that's a very deliberate and very smart choice, I think. Mm-hmm. Also, I think if you're a hypnotist, you probably don't get that baller home either. I mean, I don't know what hypnotists <laughs> make, but yeah. psychiatrists, they do rake in some really good fucking money. <laughs> well, and I like, like, cause he does try to say no twice. Yeah. Yes. Like when they're at the table and then when he in the middle of the night um, yeah. and I like imagine going through his mind, like, can I actually say no? Like how, cl- mm-hmm. how clear can I make it that mm-hmm. I'm not giving consent here before I get in trouble? Yeah. And even like, is it okay to tell Rose that her mom, that her mom did this fucked up thing, you know, and that's that level of safe and unsafe. Yeah. And he says, I don't want to do this. He yeah. explicitly says like, yeah, I don't want to do this. And mm-hmm. she just barrels, barrels right through that. No, oh, so at that bad. point. Yeah, it is, you know, folks, that's unethical. It is definitely, (laughs) as we talk, I want to say that it is definitely unethical to hypnotize your client against their consent. Just have to go on the record here and state. I have to say, that is a very bad thing. I love Caleb Landry Jones, the brother. That performance. Um, He's also in. He's gross. Go on. He's good in everything Uh he's in. He's in The Last Exorcism. He's the brother in that movie. I think he's also in the dead don't die, which is 
possibly that's yes. a, a f- like an acquired taste maybe but you know mm-hmm. adam driver's hot speaking of hot people i want to talk about bradley whitford for just a second Let's do it. because i love that man so much aged mm-hmm. like a fine wine i have been watching the west wing recently which mm-hmm. is maybe not as aged as well but man his performance in this movie is amazing and his like that's where a lot of the the not quite comedy but kind of like fun of the movie comes in you know because he just plays everything he says has that little wink in his eye you know mm. and he's just mm-hmm. I love that he does because he's in my other favorite horror movie um Cabin in the Woods and the oh, man he's so great just, in that movie I forgot I about that for a second I just yeah I just love him he's brilliant in Billy Madison is the really <laughs> true <reason>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. he's so good He's such a good weasel <laughs> I know. in that movie. I just love him so much. Um, I want to talk about one more Armitage, and this was the new read that I found on this movie is Rose mm-hmm. and why he doesn't kill Rose at the mm. end, which I think really kind of ties into generational trauma. And I'm going to quote an article that I'm going to link called What Becky Got to Do to Get Murked, White Womanhood in Jordan Peele's Get Out, which I just love the title of that. Uh, But there's such a a history of white women really being a threat to black men and any kind of like friendliness or gesture creating this perceived threat to white women and white women using that. Um, And there's like... I mean, I could name a bunch of cases um, like Emmett Till is the one that That's I mean, all you need. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so that I think that is part of this legacy of generational trauma is that white women are kind of inherently a threat to black men. And so I was reading this article and it blew my mind because at the end he's choking um I want to call her Becky. He's choking Rose and then he looks at her and then he stops. And I think Val and I, you, you and I were talking about this earlier. Mm -hmm. I think we both kind of read it as like, you know. Yeah. At first I thought he was like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm just not going to stoop to your level. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, when they go low, we go high kind of thing. Right. But but then this time I love her. Um, but then this time, (laughs) Stop being weird, Jennifer. Okay. um, (laughs) This time I read it and I was thinking like they're like taking that legacy of white women. And if we look at the death of um, Missy, the mother, like that's off screen compared to Bradley Whitford, who we see like blood squirting out of his mouth. And Caleb's death does occur off screen, but we see a lot of the buildup to that fight. And we also see him get smashed in the head. And then look at the death of Georgina, who we see her body and we see her head. Mm-hmm. We know for sure that she's dead. And it just made me, this article really pointed that out and said, if we continue to see Chris as an avatar for black manhood, and I'm quoting right now, the film's finale serves as one more indictment of black men's sustained inability to punish white women for their willful complicity in white supremacy. It's almost as if brothers are still scared they'll get lynched if they demonstrate any violence toward Becky, even cinematically. But the intentional framing and editing choices Peel makes to conceal and work around the explicit deaths of Missy and Rose show that white women are still valued as fragile and occupy a unique cultural privilege, even in the blackest horror film of this decade, which Mm. I just thought was such an interesting reading of that and really kind of speaks to generational trauma at the, and one that we don't really talk about that often. 
Yeah. No. Well, before we we talked about this, and you mentioned that I I didn't realize that. Again, part of the system, and I I was saying I would love to hear um, Peel's thoughts on the why, mm -hmm. um, because it's it's either very intentional just for the storyline, or he's like I get to do all this, but I I know I still don't have license to do that. Yeah, it's um, it's inter in the original ending. She he kills her, which I think is interesting. He in the commentary of his that I heard over. So I don't I don't know explicitly why he chose not to kill Rose in the theatrical edition, but in the in the director's commentary on the original ending, he sort of says like, oh, she dies, you know, maybe not. We didn't really linger on that shot. We were kind of rushing at that point in the production, which, you know, and we just didn't have that much time left. So that's, you know, that, that's all he says about it in that mm -hmm. one, in that one piece of commentary. I don't know if he's been interviewed on it more directly or has spoken to it, but I thought that was kind of interesting that in what he mm -hmm. saw as the more realistic ending. And I think it's also perhaps in his mind, that's the action that really puts Chris in jail, like in, in an over the top way. Obviously he's, they, they see him in that, in that narrative storyline as guilty for the murder of the whole Armitage family, but it's probably like killing Rose was the final nail in the coffin um, because, because of that, that history. Um, and so in this version, him choosing not to do it, it's more of like the, the hero's ending for Chris where he mm -hmm. doesn't, he doesn't kill her. So, um, you know, all the other deaths that happened were more in self-defense and mm -hmm. in that moment, mm -hmm. he chooses to say no and, and get in the car. Like, she's probably going to bleed yeah. out anyway. It's not like he does anything to help mm -hmm. her, you know? Yeah. Um, right. Well, yeah. Go ahead, Mike. There's a parallel to his story about his mother mm -hmm. at that point. Because I, watching this again the other night, like, I felt like Rose does die at the end. Like, you see the life go out of her eyes. Oh, she does. Like she is dead, mm -hmm. yeah. So there's this idea, like, just like Chris's mother, you know, was lying in the road and no one was there to rescue her at the end. I think part of the beauty of this ending is like Rose's plan and her family's plan doesn't come to fruition that it fail. And she sees the failure ultimately that, and also that like Chris is going to get away. Like Chris is going to survive to and live another day. And she has to live even for a short period of time with that knowledge. And there's like a real kind of a beautiful parallel there to at this point now, Rose is the one that's left behind and in the middle of the road with no one to come and care for her and to help her out at that point, mm -hmm. much like Chris's mom's in, in his reflection on how she had passed away. Which is a really mm -hmm. wonderful clo like closing of the loop for his character's story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and going mm -hmm. back for Georgina, I think, too. And mm -hmm. in the commentary right. of that final scene, Jordan Peele was talking about that and how he might still be in jail, but like his, that action. And if he had just driven without going to get Georgina probably would have gotten away, but that action mm -hmm. and that empathy and that really wanting to like get closure for that trauma. And mm -hmm. that's interesting. I hadn't thought about like he intentionally, because when I'm talking about him not killing Rose, I do think she's going to die, but his choice to take his hands off of her neck is I think what I'm specifically mm -hmm. talking about. And I mean, there could be a read of that of, he is inflicting that trauma on her as punishment because he knows what mm -hmm. that trauma is. And I think that's maybe a more darker read than I want for Chris or like a more kind of insidious one. But I mean, it, there's just a lot of layers. And I think this is a one I keep saying it's brilliant, but it's like it gives you enough to read, but it really lets you come to your own conclusions, which I think is 
like inviting you to do the work and then really requiring you to do the work, mm-hmm. which is, I think, what we need to move yeah. forward. And in my... I got this idea. Oops, sorry, Laurie. Laurie I, just, I was going to say, in my opinion, it's another hallmark of good writing is forcing you to do mm-hmm. a little bit of the work yourself, not laying it all out and wrapping it up for right. you perfectly. Go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. Yeah. Sorry, and I know we're getting long here, so I'll be quick on this. But the I, this we've talked a bit about this idea of like white liberalism, and what we're seeing here literally is white persons saying they know better. And Jen, you had talked really eloquently about the fetish, the fetishization of Chris, and like his muscles, his physique, his talents, his body, and all these other celebrities. And what you have are these like very wealthy, rich white people saying like, if we had these gifts, if we had this ability look what we would be capable of doing we know better than you and you know in some ways like i don't get the idea that the armitage think that what they're doing is punishment i think that with the way i read this is like look how we're going to improve your race like you are wasting your gifts and with our knowledge with our wealth like we are going to make you better that's kind of the ultimate read i have of this movie and again it ties into this kind of white liberalism that we can often be guilty of and i know i can be guilty of as well of saying like why don't you know better if you just listened if you just did this wouldn't things go better for you at that point yeah that was so clear with your natural gifts the the little videos Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and our determination Mm -hmm. because Black people are just brute strength mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever the physical characteristics are. And I think it's important that white people are leading a lot of movements because they're, you know, uh, afforded certain privileges, but the voice has got to be given to the minoritized people to drive the movement. And that's mm-hmm. not done. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. The, because when we were talking earlier about boots, one of the things that I thought was like, what if I don't want to live in a world where I have to wear boots every day? You know, that's not even an option because the construction that we all live in is still like revolves around this white male like hierarchy, you know, and um, and that's appropriation, too, is that mm. I surely I know better and I'm going to take this thing, but I'm going to make it my own and now it's mine now because I just deserve it and like the I think about like professional athletes going back to like the dad losing to Jesse Owens like (laughs) if I think about like if your worst day is that you didn't make it to the Super Bowl like you're still pretty having a pretty good day and like the sense of entitlement that he has that I'm so good that surely I should be the best in the world and because I'm not with my own natural gifts I said in air quotes I deserve to just take that from somebody else because mm-hmm. I'm the one that matters. And there's like a, a level of narcissism in there mm-hmm. also that's just so learned over time and ingrained and internalized. Yeah. It's like our whole culture has a personality disorder. <laughs> like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that we want to talk about before we move on? Can I tell you my favorite part of the movie that yes, I didn't please. realize I love uh-huh. so much? I what if was... we said no? That would be so weird. <laughs> I would so just weird. keep talking because <laughs> when Chris wakes up from his, um, I guess his first, well, when he's in the leather chair mm-hmm. and I, you see him like he's torn through the leather. 
I didn't realize, and of course I had to read a little bit about this, like what that stuffing is and it's how it's cotton and how mm. that the symbolism of the, the bloody hands of enslaved people working with cotton. Um, and then it became the thing that, that, that saved him, that got him mm. out, that he mm. used to save himself. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. Enslaved people freed themselves. But I just love that so much. Um, I might go watch that <laughs> part again before we go to sleep. Mm -hmm. um, and it just speaks to the necessarily necessary resiliency of oppressed people. Mm -hmm. And I will echo what you've been saying. This is just a perfect <laughs> <movie>. <laughs> It really is. Yeah. It's airtight. Yeah, the overwhelming thing that I learned from the last four years is that, like, I can't rely on anybody else to speak for me. I have to speak for myself, and I have to figure out how to do that safely and how to help other people do that, too. And, mm. you know, and that's a lot of where, you know, this podcast comes from is just me wanting to speak for myself and hoping that other people will speak, too. So as we're winding down, and I think we can go through this really quickly because we are running a little bit long. We usually mention any other mental health topics we see represented here. I think we've really hit all of them. Yeah. The only other one I would say is paranoia. And we've got two episodes on paranoia, <laughs> if you would like to check that out. Um, I think it's Sinister and um, Fright Night and The Birds. Yep. And but we can't, uh, I think, just briefly um, talk about any other movies we see generational trauma represented in. Um, we're not going to go into detail, but if you're interested in this topic, this is a good place to start. And I want to say, first of all, Horror Noir is a documentary from Shudder. It is fantastic. There is also a book by Robin Armines Coleman, and that was the inspiration for Horror Noir. A lot of it is based on that. And that is also a fantastic book. I also want to mention The Stepford Wives, which I know Peel has said was an inspiration for this movie, and Lovecraft Country. And when I say Lovecraft Country, I want to give a disclaimer that it is a bit messy, and I think they really f kind of do not present intersectionality well. I don't think that the show itself had a good understanding of that, but a lot of um, looking at the past of African-American experiences in this country is, is really interestingly woven into the story. And, and it's know. better than Green Book. Yes, that is. I mean, that's not the highest bar, but yes, it is better than Green <laughs> yeah. Book. Yeah. Um, uh, does anybody else see anything they want to mention real quick? Just, I would say watch Relic in terms of generational mm. trauma. I would say that would be a, a good look-see if you want. That is a really good uh, it's a visual new, metaphor you know, for generational trauma uh, you know. that, that's woven in there. And the other one I would bring up is the movie we're watching next, so I'll save it. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, stay tuned. And now it's time for an uplifting moment. This is where we share any grounding or self-care that's been particularly impactful for us recently. And I think a part of me is always going to see that as grinding and self-care now. <laughs> I think that, has, has been, that word is ruined for me forever. I'll, cr um, I'll cross-stitch that on something at some point. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, grounding and coping techniques are little tips, tricks, or mantras that help us get through the tough days or moments. And self-care is anything that makes us feel better or that we do because it helps us feel good. And I shall open the floor if anyone would care to share. I will share a really stupid purchase that I made, but it has turned out to be great. 
Just I bought like an adult sized bean bag, basically an overpriced adult sized bean bag called a Moon Pod. Uh, they can mm. hashtag sponsor us. Um, and it yeah. is it's it's so stupid. I've, it was I've been getting targeted on Instagram with it like repeatedly, and they finally you know if you if you click on it enough times or tap on it enough times, they'll come back with a discount code. Um, and so that's what I, I waited for that to happen and. It's literally just this, it's like very firm, but very uh, soft at the same time. And I've got all kinds of aches and pains that I have that are just seem to be getting worse and worse lately. Can't imagine why as I sit at home clenched <laughs> tightly. Um, but laying on this thing, it's like it supports all my screwed up body parts really well. And uh, and I, I'm in less pain after sitting on it the last few days. So I highly recommend the overpriced adult beanbag that I just purchased. I couldn't resist. I just, I I gave, I just gave up. I couldn't resist it any longer. (laughs) Hey, you got to treat yourself sometimes, you know? It was like, I'm like, I told myself this will be my last dumb purchase for at least six months. (laughs) (laughs) I, I am being at home as a single mom working full time. I, I feel like there's not enough time in the day and there's not, but the, the thing that has gone by the wayside is my, my exercise routine. Um, and I felt not only physically well, but very mentally well, uh, when I moved a lot. Um, and I've, I've taken a challenge and I, I was telling Jen at some point, I don't like these monthly challenges. Um, and I think I hate them because I never get (laughs) through them, but this one is, um, to benefit, uh, an organization called Steve's club that, um, offers, classes like workout classes but also nutrition um to underserved youth and and it's like i think i needed that to get myself moving so ten thousand jumps in in a month and i feel better um and it's just a nice reminder that when things become so overwhelming um and you feel so isolated uh that one little step makes a real difference and i think we're probably going to have to hold on to that for the greater part of this coming year. Um, and that's okay. Now mm-hmm. it's okay. Completely agree yeah. with that. My thing, I was having a hard time be figuring out uh, what I was going to talk about because this has been kind of a rough week for me. I think I'm kind of on the upswing of it now, partly because I have enjoyed this conversation so much. And I feel like talking in, about these things is really healing for me in a lot of ways, but I've been letting myself go to bed at like seven thirty sometimes. And that's been very nice. And the other day, I've also, like, I'm working at home, so I'll just kind of have the TV on, and I've had, like, background watches, you know, don't tell my boss. But um, (laughs) I just, the other day, it was, like, really, like, everything was starting to get to me, and I was just feeling really overwhelmed and, like, with virtual school and stuff. And I just set a timer on my phone for 10 minutes. I said, I am just watching TV for 10 minutes. I'm not, and then I'll check back in and keep doing it, but I'm just going to let myself just sit here and not have to, like, divide my time and my attention. And it was really nice just to give myself that moment ironically I was watching Bradley Whitford on the West Wing so (laughs) you know that was also a nice little dovetail but yeah I think any employer that doesn't understand that all of their employees are doing that at the very least right now is a fool and a moron Mm -hmm. and (laughs) uh, they can s my (laughs) knees sorry sorry I hope my employer doesn't hear that (laughs) anyway I know So I'll stick on the employer kick right now. Like this has been a tough week with one of my jobs. Like I love doing counseling. Like I will, I've been doing, and I only get to do that part-time right now because my full-time job is 
working as a school as a counselor and I'm doing like zero actual counseling right now because the kids are remote and I feel like I'm more of a tutor and coach and I am getting asked to do things that really kind of fall out of but as are a lot of persons right now so it kind of is what it is like I can go to the counseling gig and like spend four hours there and walk out even after some really tough cases like completely reinvigorated and feel like woo I fucking love doing this and with the other job it's like really really difficult and like this was the week I actually spoke up a little bit like one in a department meeting like if you put one more thing on my plate right now I will tell you that I'll snap and I'm not the person that generally says that I'm like what more can we do and it came up like that question was asked like what more can we do to reach out to the kids in need right now I'm like I'll tell you open the school up and let them back in aside from that not much that and like a couple other things that had come up where I had really kind of advocated for myself and I remember like I was talking to what like the uh, associate principal who I, I really respect and like having she came on board after Christmas last year and my job immediately got easier because she gets it and like I almost like had a breakdown talking to her I actually had to take myself off camera because I'm like I just can't do this right now so for me like to get back in a groove or to feel good like what is I what really missing for me right now are like my escapes, like going to a movie on a Friday night when everyone's in bed and seeing what's new, grabbing the laptop, going to the coffee shop and doing an hour of writing in a space that's different and live music. I cannot stress enough how much I miss going into a shitty little basement in Alston, Massachusetts or Brighton right now. And seeing some shit, shitty punk rock band play with a hundred kids. And so I just like to feel better now and again. Like my self-care tip has been to like find old shows. Like in some of like some I haven't been to, but some I'm like, oh, this was my best friend's band in the early uh, or late aughts. And like here I am up front singing along at their last show with like there are like five of my closest friends who I haven't seen in a year and all the feels hit at that point. And maybe I'll send a link to you, Jen, and you can put it in the show notes. Yeah. I'm like, there's me 50 pounds ago. Um, <laughs> and it is, you know, it's one of those things where I'm like, it'll come back. Like, we'll get back to this again. We'll be able to get back to this again. And I am going to like, May, I, I think like for at least a year when this ends or when there's not going to be a night where I'm like maybe tonight I don't want to go out I am going to immediately kick myself in the ass when I say that and get in the car and make the drive so I think it, it got too easy to take it for granted definitely so music music has definitely been that thing to kind of boost me back up again right now I hear you and I'm telling you, when, when this pandemic is over and we can return to having live mm. events, everybody is, is going to get alcohol poisoning, um, collapse from exhaustion, yeah. and just, yeah. just <laughs> they're gonna come, we're going to swing so hard in the opposite direction. Uh -huh. that yeah. It's going to, yeah, we're going to take a little it's while. It's just going to be balance things like out. a Bacchanal for a month. Right. <laughs> I'm calling out sick. Uh -huh. 
So we want to hear from you. Do you agree or disagree with what we've said? Uh, what do you think of Get Out? Do you have any experiences or feelings that you'd like to share? You can answer these questions and more by following us on socials at PsychoAPod. Look out for posts and prompts and clips and stuff. And please feel free to reach out and say hi. Um, and just in general social media for my own personal mental health, I've been noticing just a like goes a long way. If you see some tweet and you like it, just like give me that dopamine. Click, click the like. <laughs> yeah, it, it does, you know. Um <laughs> And you can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group. This is a private and moderated group, and it's a really great community and place to share some of the more personal reactions to some of these topics. And it is growing by the day. Um, and it's just a really, you know, it's private and moderated, I want to reiterate also. You can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you'd like to share privately. And if you have a couple of minutes, we would love for you to leave us a rate and review. It really, I know all the pods say it, but it, it's true that it helps people find the show and it makes us feel good. Um, most of the reviews do. <laughs> By and large, I would say people like have reacted in a really the way to the show mostly like, yeah yeah there's five people <laughs> who people... really hate it but everyone else i know it. but that just means we're doing when something people... right you know exactly yeah, when, when people don't like us they really don't <laughs> yeah, that is true violently it's negative right. reaction to us <laughs> i know yeah but then title it meh I'm like i know meh. meh is a three-star title anyways uh, i'm not well, gonna critique yeah, well, that well, well. <laughs> Anyways, look through um, our reviews sometimes for entertainment. <laughs> exactly. And then leave us one. <laughs> one that's not titled meh. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, our homework question for this week is more of a command, but in a nice way. Um, tell us your awkward meet the parents stories. If you please, I will maybe soften a little. Um, we want to know, did you go to a girlfriend or boyfriend's parents' house and were they really weird or were they, you know, did they look like Bradley Whitford? and you know. Anyways, um, so what are we watching next? Next for us, we have a comfort horror episode that I'm really excited about. But before we talk about that, because we did mention the next movie we're going to talk oh, about, shit. On I ruined the it. <laughs> oh no, no, no! We should probably go ahead and say it anyways, because I want to talk about that whole thing in just a minute. The next movie we're going to talk about in terms of generational trauma is Candyman, and. We got to be careful how many times we say it because, and we are technically looking in mirrors right now. You know, I know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. What? Yeah, true. So yes, that's going to be the next episode we have on generational trauma. That's going to be dropping in two weeks. Um, and before I tell you the next comfort horror movie we're doing, I want to clarify something. The comfort horror episodes usually don't have anything to do with our monthly themes. The way we usually do it is um, we will have a guest and let the guest choose the movie and then we just kind of go with it and so the next movie that we're going to talk about doesn't really have much to do with generational trauma and i just Wait, want to make that clear was, was that a was that a thing that had come up had someone commented a on couple of people yeah no it wasn't troll too i think it was um okay. it might have been the hitcher like i'm not sure how the okay. hitcher falls into whatever it was I, I found watching Troll 2 extremely depressing, so I thought it fit nicely. Meow. <laughs> um, yeah, but I just wanted to clarify that, too. Um, and I January was a month where I was really grateful for the Comfort Horror episodes because we had 
two just really heavy episodes and it was nice to know <laughs> for me it was nice to know that we had troll two in the middle of those <laughs> to talk about for mike maybe not so much but um that's just a, that's a personal reaction we can we all have a separate true. corner for those moments <laughs> it was a very fun discussion <laughs> it was very fun yeah so just know just in general the comfort horror episodes are usually kind of one-offs where we just kind of have some kick fun back a little more a little exactly yeah. Um, and speaking of, I'm so excited about our next episode. Gina from Kill by Kill podcast is going to be stopping by to talk about Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> well, Excellent. I had to really make sure I didn't say Stroker's Dracula. Um, I'm sorry. It really makes me laugh. <laughs> Kill by Kill is great. Patrick and, and Gina. It's a really wonderful show and she's fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to it and also love this movie because it's bonkers. So make sure to watch that before next week because we're going to spoil it. Uh, we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us along with a lot of other great pods by going to consequenceofsound.com. Shows like The Losers Club and Halloweenies, and they are about to kick off their next franchise, Scream which my feelings for that franchise are well-documented, um, but very excited about that. Um, Val, do you have anything you'd like to plug or talk about? Yeah, there are, are a couple of things I'd love to talk about. One is the Afrolatchian on-time music gathering. Uh, this is a group of people who are now my friends. Um, we came together. Uh, we, we host an annual um, uh, festival uh, and and before we do a we, we give a performance we as as activists and musicians and researchers come together and share what we're doing to um, to promote black culture in our work um, which is really wonderful and one of my friends from this group his name is Joe Siemens he's got a series called face the music that uh, asks participants to confront uh, anti-racism work through through the work that that they do or you know what we do in our everyday lives and um, he is a remarkable teacher and co-conspirator and I think uh, y'all should check him out awesome. yeah Val and I just finished that class and I'm I'm mm -hmm. sad tomorrow night's going to be the first night that we don't have class with these wonderful people so yes Highly yeah. recommend that. Um, Mike, where can we find you? So you can find me over at The Pod and the Pendulum with Lindsay Travis, where we cover horror movie franchises and we do horror movie themes. So we just wrapped up Sinister and we're doing like a two month excursion into like a French new wave extreme horror movies. So Inside, Martyrs, Frontiers. Uh, we're going to cover Raw as like part of like a latter example of that. So every other week we'll have a new episode up. Um, if you're a patron of our show, you can hear uh, Lindsay and I talk about Tim Burton's Batman this month. And Lindsay is the self-proclaimed bat bitch. Like she knows <laughs> more about the character than anyone I know. And it was just such a fucking incredible discussion with her to hear her kind of just really educate the masses or just the patrons on on that movie so you can find us there the same day this comes out you can hear me guesting on a podcast called disenfranchised mm. with uh chewy walrus and brett um where basically we talk uh, my bloody valentine we talk about movies that never became franchises even though they seemed like they should have so um for valentine's day season we talk about the 1981 slasher my bloody valentine it was a really fun talk with those guys you so you can find me there with yeah on the, 
Yeah. Sorry. Little Harry Warden. <laughs> so on the socials, uh, Mike underscore Snoonian or Pod and Pendulum. And yeah, I've like talked way more than I thought I was going to tonight. So I'll be <laughs> quiet now. Laura, where can we find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S. Oh boy. Just like, <laughs> just like edible boxer shorts, full pair of boxer shorts made out of fruit roll up, edible boxer shorts, an underrated type of edible underwear. That's underalls, mm-hmm. U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S on Twitter. That was one of my worst showings yet for my, my running, my running theme here. Uh, and like <laughs> thanks. <laughs> and on Instagram at Instaglum, like Instagram, but with a mood disorder. And sometimes I'm on Halloweenies. Sometimes I'm on Losers Club. Mostly I'm just alone in this room. Hmm. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and you can find me at Jim Ferratu on all the socials. And I, you can also find me on the Losers Club and um, I'm doing a stand read along on Twitter too, which has been kind of fun. So if you're interested in that, check it out at um, Jen Ferratu. And yeah, that's our episode on Get Out. Um, thank you so much for joining us and for engaging on us, engaging with us on this subject. We know it's not an easy thing to talk about, but it's really important that we get better at that. Val, thank you so much for joining us. Thank this you, was- Val so much fun really yes um and with that let's sign off uh we came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves and And we're we're all all out of of bubblegum Consequence Podcast Network.